Hello, and welcome to Media Evil, a medieval pop culture podcast, where we talk about how medieval and medieval-inspired movies, TV, and books depict the medieval world. What do they get right? What do they get wrong? And what do they tell us about how modern people see the medieval past? I'm Sarah Itchdecker, a medieval historian, and today I'm joined by another medieval historian, Lucy Barnhouse, to talk about the 1997 TV adaptation of Sir Walter Scott's Ivanhoe. So Lucy, welcome. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining me. And why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and also about why you recommended that we cover this particular piece of media? <laughs> sure. Um, so uh, I am a historian of medieval medicine and more particularly medieval hospitals. And I currently teach at Arkansas State University. I have had, you know, the peripatetic life of an early career <laughs> academic. Oh, yes, we all have. Indeed. I've landed here in the Mid-South, uh, where I teach broadly. The reasons for my recommending this particular piece of uh, medieval media are several. First of all, I loved Ivanhoe, the novel, when mm -hmm. I was 13. It was formative for proto-medievalist me um, in all its swashbuckling set pieces and uh -huh. uh, antic prose. And the 1997 Ivanhoe, I feel, is a really interesting but mm -hmm. little-known piece of medieval media. In many ways, it feels to me like a gritty reboot before its time uh -huh. that I think makes some interesting choices about mm -hmm. its characters and its plot. It tries to tie the strands of, of its plot together in ways that Sir Walter Scott sometimes didn't. So uh -huh. it, to, to contextualize the romantic narrative of Ivanhoe in the 12th mm -hmm. century world in right. ways that don't always work, but they're trying. Right. And so I think, I, think that it, I think that it is a really interesting case study. Also, the ways in which Ivanhoe is um, kind of genre weird, because on the one hand, they're, they're adapting this 1819 novel, but also trying mm -hmm. to do something that, that feels more historic than, say, right. um, the adaptation of Pride and Prejudice, an 1813 novel made mm -hmm. just two years earlier, right? In the same time frame, same episode format, all that. Thank you so much for bringing this to me. I'm really looking forward to having this conversation, and I will just go ahead and admit at the outset, I read Ivanhoe, I think also when I was about 13 or 14, but to be honest, I don't actually remember much of it. I was considering rereading it and then realized, A, that it was about 400 pages and that it was therefore a bit more of an undertaking than I initially thought it was, but also B, I have been dealing with a power outage this week. So essentially anything that was not available to me immediately in a hard copy, I was not reading. Yeah, that's, so. that's totally fair. I have reread Ivanhoe fairly recently in connection okay. with uh, podcast episodes for footnoting history on like the novel itself and some of its mm -hmm. complicated reception theory. So I have fresh Ivanhoe knowledge. Uh, Excellent. <laughs> Excellent. Say. <laughs> I will I will rely on you for that. And the other thing that I will just say at the outset is that this will be Media Evil's first recorded episode with its new uh, junior producer, my new cat Dolce. Yay. So if you hear some miscellaneous background noise, she is a much quieter meower, but she had than my lot than my last producer cat, Carmen, but she also has kitten zoomies. And so wild thumps happen on occasion in my house these days. 
So let's get into Ivanhoe. came out in 1997 and it was uh, BBC and I think uh, A&E in the United States. I think it was a joint, uh, a joint effort. Stars Stephen Waddington as Ivanhoe, who is not somebody who I was familiar with as an actor, but he's very large and uh, uh, sort of what you think of when you think of a kind of Saxony English gentleman. Like he's wholesome. He's a nice boy who also looks as though he could unhorse people. Yeah. Not a household name, but but a good Ivanhoe. Yeah. Yeah. He's a sort of large Aryan man. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) <laughs> oh, damning with faint praise. <laughs> and he, he is, he's relatively charming. It's, a, it's one of those things where I tend to kind of watch these and be like, why is everybody into this person? But he's doing a good job. We also have Kieran Hines as Brian Dubois-Gilbert, who mm-hmm. is, uh, has always been a favorite of mine. I'm always thrilled to see Kieran Hines in pretty much anything. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> James Cosmo as Cedric, who has made a number of appearances on this podcast. I think there's some law about James Cosmo in medieval historical drama. It's a good right. law. I'm a fan. <laughs> yeah, he he does a good kind of elder statesman-y sort of medieval gentleman. Kind of like rough, but also commanding. Yeah. I guess. We have Victoria Smurfit as Rowena. And I looked her up because something about her face, I was just like this, like, I can't place her, but she looks so familiar. And... I actually saw her relatively recently in the delightful yet also kind of terrible show Once Upon a Time playing Cruella DeVille because it's basically a weird like kind of Disney like let's plop everyone together in the same universe essentially. Okay. Okay. So yeah, there's a point at which Cruella DeVille shows up and is like the great adversary of, you know, Snow White basically, you know, as you do. Yeah. I mean, having watched this miniseries at an impressionable age, I definitely had a crush on her and her cheekbones, but I have seen her in a few other things besides, you know, the assorted British detective dramas. And I will say, I mean, so this was 1987, the Once Upon a Time appearance that she made would have been, you know, probably 20 years after that. And, you know, she still looks great. Excellent cheekbones. Yeah. We have uh, Christopher Lee as Templar Grandmaster Beaumanoir, who, oh my God, he's so good. He's, he's so, so good. perfect. He really <laughs> is. And he's so hammy, but he's so excellent. It's perfect, like, which is great yeah. for Beaumanoir, right? This totally unselfconscious zealot. Like, you just need Christopher yeah. Lee bring out prey. Like, it's, it's magnificent. Right, yeah. And it's like, it's great. It's like, you're, you're just like Saruman, but you're also a Templar. It's fantastic. Yeah. It works. It works. Yeah. We have David Harvich as Isaac and Susan Lynch as Rebecca. And I will note that she is, by the way, as far as I could tell, uh, in no way, shape or form Jewish at all. She seems to be of Irish and Italian background, which I mentioned because there is in particular a kind of odd thing in Hollywood that very regularly Jewish men are sometimes more often cast to actually play Jews, but many of the most central Jewish women characters are not actually played by Jewish women. Yeah, I, I am aware of this. And it is a real problem for Rebecca's as well yeah. as um, as other Jewish women characters. But yeah, Elizabeth Taylor, Olivia Hussey, and uh, Susan Lynch. Susan Lynch, mm-hmm. one of Ireland's great. finest actresses, arguably, but um, but yeah, not not Jewish. No, she's Irish and Italian seems to be her her background. Because I, I did look it up because I didn't want to, you know, say I didn't want to, you know, complain about it uh, wrongfully. But somebody could have thought about that one. 
We also have Ralph Brown as Prince John, Rory Edwards as King Richard, and Sean Phillips as Eleanor of Aquitaine in her brief appearance. Uh, And she, of course, is somebody who I encountered frequently at a relatively young age as Livia in BBC by Claudius, where she is so good. Livia energy is is really good for Eleanor of Aquitaine. Oh, yes. And uh, as Eleanor of Aquitaine, just being very fed up with her dumb sons, she's, she's a bit like... Yes. Yes. It's also funny because she has a small role as well in the film Beckett, which is relatively Ooh. close in time to this. Oh, yeah. I, Gwendolyn. She's Gwendolyn. Yes. Oh, yes. oh, I forgot about that. Now I'm sad again. But yeah, um, Eleanor of Aquitaine actually doesn't show up in Ivanhoe, the novel. So this mm-hmm. is uh, a gift to us by the yes. 1967 miniseries. Like you can't just not have Eleanor of Aquitaine show up. You have Robin Hood, you have King Richard in disguise. Just get Eleanor of Aquitaine in here. And I'm all for that because that's actually always my thing when I watch so many of these adaptations that it's like, it's like the thing from the Simpsons where it's like, everybody's like, where's Poochie? I'm actually like, where's Eleanor? Anytime there's an adaptation that involves John and Richard in this period. I'm like, why, why aren't you just bringing in Eleanor? Missed opportunity. Yes. I'm delighted that they did. Yes. So at this point, we can get into the first proper section, the enumeratio or recap, where we talk through a bit about what happens in the miniseries. I'll just do a kind of brief orienting recap of the overall premise, which is more or less that of the overall premise of the book Ivanhoe as well. And then we can get into some of the details of the particular episodes. The miniseries follows the story of Ivanhoe as he returns to England in the year 1192 amid rumors that he betrayed King Richard while on crusade and subsequent adventures. Ivanhoe must attempt to clear his name while restoring Richard to his throne and navigating between his love for both Rowena, his childhood sweetheart, and Rebecca, a Jewish healer. We've we've got a write-off start at the beginning of episode one with Ivanhoe being whipped because it was very violent back then. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Like Sir Walter Scott starts us off in, you know, an idyllic English forest, but also with a creepy druid stone circle for reasons, Mm -hmm. I guess. And yeah, as I say, gritty reboot before it's time. This Mm -hmm. this interpolates like uh, captivity and torture that are not part of Ivanhoe's past as far as, uh, you know, in the book. But yeah, right off just sadism in in a dungeon. Yeah. And so we have this whole thing set up that he was on crusade with Richard, as we all know from history, which was sort of indicated, I guess I'd say, over the course of the miniseries on the way back from crusade, Richard ends up being held captive for an extended amount of time in Central Europe. A ransom then has to be paid to get him back. And the essentially what we have set up here is that Ivanhoe is reputed to have been the one who betrayed Richard, but in reality, he was trying to help Richard. And it is Brian de Bois-Gilbert, who is the real one who betrayed King Richard. Very sad. I will say even before we get to the torture dungeon, though, we have a title card that substantially duplicates the content of the first title card from the 1938 Robin Hood. Like the year is 11. Oh, yeah. Languishes endurance vile, Leopold Mm -hmm. of Austria, Prince John, boo, you know. Right. Opening scene. Right. And I will say, you know, I'll just, I will just say at the outset, this is something I really appreciate that this and that 1938 Robin Hood adaptation are things that actually acknowledge the extra period of captivity, because a lot of things tend to just make it sound like Richard just was just gone on crusade during his entire absence from England. So I like when that piece gets included. Yeah. 
definitely in Austria inadvertently for two years. Yes. We've got a group of assorted people in the woods who are, uh, are, are kind of, they're important to the plot, but also are sort of comic relief characters. I think one is actually a jester. Yeah, so Girth and Wamba, I have a lot of feelings about them. But yeah, Girth is the swineherd of Cedric of Rotherwood. And Wamba, although he was partially educated to be a priest at one point, which is why he knows Latin, is Cedric's jester. They are both unfree and they are sidekick characters of Cedric's household. Right. They also come with a dog, Fang, who is... Excellent. And Fang is, I didn't actually directly look it up, but Fang certainly looks at least to be an Irish wolfhound, which is my childhood dog. Yeah, he, he is a, an Irish wolfhound. Yeah, so I, I'm always very happy to see Irish wolfhounds. And in particular, that Fang uh, plays, I would say, a kind of very, a kind of relatively prominent role overall over the course of the miniseries. Yes. We find out what's going on over at Cedric's castle. Ivanhoe is his son. And he's missing and presumed to be a traitor. And the plan or the idea in theory, or at least he and Rumina had wanted to marry one another. Was that ever something that Cedric was actually ever on board with? Oh, no. 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 Right. Okay. Because, like, Rowena is the daughter of a royal house descended yes. in King Alfred's lines. So he's like, no, I have political plans for you. But Rowena and Ivanhoe have grown up together, their childhood sweethearts. And he's cute and smart and they're very much in love but yeah and and I will say you would think that Cedric out of pure selfishness would actually love to marry this ward from a great royal royal line to his own son but like I think this is a key element of Cedric's character though not that this makes him sympathetic but that Mm -hmm. kind of self-interest is something that he utterly rejects now it's not Mm -hmm. clear why you know in the aftermath of the interregnum which was super traumatic for everyone cedric thinks it's a really great idea to dispute the crown of england again right bring it back to saxon rule well that's where that's the goal so so he he's not going to get in the way of that he views it as a kind of Mm -hmm. sacred trust i would argue right Mm -hmm. That, that this is his cause and he's behind it even if none of the other would-be key players are, are fully mm-hmm. on board with him. It's not it's not a particularly sympathetic character trait for Cedric, no. but I, he is a man of principle, however, however um, unsympathetic. Yeah. Yeah. And I and I will say so, you know, so he wants to marry Romina to Athelstan, who is uh, the uh, I guess kind of presumptive Saxon king were there to be a Saxon king. The other thing I will say about his character is that while he's not sympathetic per se, it is one of my many pet peeves that in things said in the Middle Ages that people are shocked, shocked to learn that they might have to make an arranged marriage. Oh, see, I didn't read Rowena as being shocked. She just doesn't. We're not shocked, just horrified. Well, yeah, I mean, maybe I'm reading too much of the book text into things okay. here and giving the the miniseries the benefit of the doubt in ways I shouldn't. But I do like that we get to see Rowena in conversation with both her priest and confessor and with Elgetha, mm-hmm. her her maid, who is a, a character given a name and more of a personality uh-huh. in the series again than in the book. So like making women visible and named and yeah. things is something that the miniseries actually makes an effort in, which I appreciate. Mm-hmm. But anyway, like for her, it's it's two things. A of all she she is very much in love with Ivanhoe. Yes. And B of all, like this particular 
marriage is one that is specifically designed to launch a bloody civil war. Uh-huh. And Rowena is like, no, 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 no. Like this, this is not going to end well for anyone. <laughs> like she, she mm-hmm. is like Ivanhoe, I think much more ready to look towards a culturally hybrid future for England right. than Cedric is. So mm-hmm. I personally read her refusal as, as much more political than it is interesting standard medieval damsel oh no even though i am a scion of the nobility who could ever have predicted that i'm expected to enter into a political marriage like but i read her refusal as politically motivated in many ways that's interesting so because not having read the book i really it seemed like what they were emphasizing more in the mini series Mm -hmm. as its own text was really just a i love ivanhoe i don't want to marry this person who's not ivanhoe yeah which is also like, which is also true, to be fair. Mm-hmm. Right, right. But I think that political uh, angle is an interesting one. And there is certainly that contrast that we have for a lot of the miniseries between the Saxon nobility who are very set on having this kind of revival of a Saxon monarchy versus those who are more willing to accommodate the their Norman Angevin rulers. Absolutely. Yeah. In the book, Rowena literally threatens Cedric. She's like, this marriage will not happen. I will join a nunnery really? I let you marry me to Athelstan. Mm-hmm. Interesting. I will say her facial expressions are excellent <laughs> over the course of these, of these kind of scenes dealing with uh, her, her kind of, these kind of efforts to make this marriage happen, that she just constantly looks like she wants to murder somebody. And she just has this excellently expressive face where even when she's not saying anything, you could just feel the fury radiating off of her. Absolutely. She has excellent murderous expression for her. Yes. <laughs> Ivanhoe returns and shows up uh, disguised originally as a pilgrim and also ends up uh, uh, siding with and helping out uh, another stranger as they're presented here, the Jew Isaac of York, who we, we get a kind of very, very early kind of immediate like, ah, yes, the Jews, everybody hates the Jews. Yeah. And yeah. is brutal and ugly, but also yeah. Fair. In a way, like, so Isaac, poor Isaac is just out on the road. He just wants, you know, a roof over his head, but he's instantly subjected to microaggressions and less microaggressions. Mm And right, poor Isaac. Yeah. And it's something I'll talk about later, but I do appreciate that it doesn't shy away from the reality of anti-Semitism, even if at the same time very much has the kind of very traditional narrative, oh, we're not allowed to do anything but money lending. And so we're doing, and so that's what we're doing. And that's why you hate us because we're doing this thing that you aren't allowed to do and that you make us do. Which we can blame Walter Scott for among among others. No, I mean, certainly at the time, I mean, certainly at the time when Walter Scott, I would say, was writing that, you know, nobody would have questioned that and also nobody would have honestly questioned very few people were overtly questioning that in the 1990s even <laughs> well so I'll... i'm just gonna say like that is that's a narrative that's very much present in yeah. the book so like yeah it's just the, the I, I, th- I think the miniseries could have done more to get away with that as you know in the book there are also more jewish characters and isaac makes mm-hmm. references to like the presence of hubs of jewish life internationally and uh-huh. aware of contemporary halakhic teaching so like mm-hmm. there is at least even with like some truly random name choices and some other you know weird things like sir walter scott is kind of trying like he gave it the yeah. to evoke a genuine 
vibrant culture for yeah. hubs of Jewish life in, mm-hmm. in fight yeah. prejudice, which, you know, is traumatizing for both him and right. her. Right. And I, and I do wish we'd seen a little bit more of that because we really just have in a lot of ways, uh, Isaac and Rebecca mostly really kind of in isolation as uh, these representatives of the Jewish population in England. And, and that's something, as I said, that I'll talk a little bit more about in a subsequent section. But uh, I, I am certainly glad that they're there and that we're, as I said, not kind of shying away from the realities of some, albeit not all of the kinds of experiences that Jews might have had with Christians. Yeah. Because Ivanhoe has been so kind to Isaac of York, Isaac has this uh, horse and set of armor that he has in pawn from somebody, and he offers it to him so that he can compete in the tourney that's supposed to then happen. And does then happen, yeah. And does then happen, although, so I think that is then moving into episode two now, that where we, where we have the tourney. We meet John as well. We've got uh, a very petulant King John, but he's very angry and upset that just people don't like him as much as they like Richard is uh, his kind of defining feature early on yeah. in particular. I mean, John is hilariously petty, but also I think yeah. like his sort of defining hilariously petty speech about how he, unlike Richard, is actually trying to administer this country and do nice <laughs> things, which he can't do because of war debts. Like, I feel like I read an article with that precise theme yeah. in grad seminar. Like, so yeah. John has a point and the writers have been doing their homework. Right. And it is interesting because there has been this effort to rehabilitate John a bit as actually in some ways a fairly effective administrator and that Richard, for all that he, you know, cuts this very impressive figure, he's not really a very good, I mean, he's kind of a nothing as a king in a lot of ways because he's not even there for much of his reign. Yeah, he's, I mean... My father's uh, English history textbook in 1934 said, uh, Richard I, whose praises history sings, was better French knight than an English king. Which, yeah, yeah, that's, hard, that's but, fair. Yeah. Yeah. One is just so unlikable, though. Like, he can't come back from Claude Rains and Peter Ustinov. Like, he's just right. set in the popular imagination as just hilariously unlikable, in mm-hmm. fact. Yeah, and I think this is a really interesting portrayal in that at the same time, he has this petulance and pettiness, and you never like him. But at the same time, there is this little bit of kind of sneaking in this kind of element of he's not stupid and he's not incompetent, and he is actually not doing the worst possible job in some ways. Uh, I also found it really interesting that he kind of starts talking about how kingship is a performance. Mm-hmm. And it's like, and it's also, again, a kind of like, oh, you did your reading, right? Because kingship is very much a performance. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So we have our uh, our tournament, which uh, I will say does include both a joust and a melee. So uh, we have a kind of more expansive view of what gets included in a tournament than what you often do in medieval set films, where it's the joust and nothing but. Yeah. Yeah, so Walter Scott is careful to include this, right? And so episode two slows our pace so that we can focus yes. on this tournament as set piece, right? And heightening the emotional and political stakes. Yes, and that's really, I think, most of what this particular episode is, is it's really focused on the tournament, which uh, in particular very kind of quickly becomes essentially a kind of Saxon versus Norman conflict being played out on this stage of a kind of real but simultaneously not totally real battle. 
plausible deniability battle is what it is. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And with a big part of this, of course, being Ivanhoe now reestablishing himself as uh, this here, albeit under a fake name. Well, I was going to say this is important. He is anonymous. He is the disinherited yes. knight. Um, yes. Who, who is, you know, invisible under his somewhat anachronistic helmet until, well, yes. he, <laughs> until he must receive the, the laurels for his, his fighting. Yes. So he's able to kind of, to some extent, establish himself, but do so by using this, uh, this disguise, which, uh, you know, feels, feels really true to certain kinds of medieval chivalric romances in some ways, mm-hmm. right? That you have this kind of use of disguise as a way of basically proving yourself without the kind of baggage of everybody knowing precisely who you are. Right. Right. Which for Ivanhoe would be some genuine baggage. Yeah. Random, semi-anonymous Saxon knight. So not in with the court, but at the same time, the Saxons don't like him because he's Mm -hmm. too Richard. Um, But yeah, as Sir Destacado, which is like not even real Latin, but as the disappearance knight. It sounds very oddly Spanish, actually. It's not real Spanish either, but it sounds closer to Spanish than Latin in terms of at least the kind of spelling, I guess. Yeah, very weird. But he effectively, you know, takes on all the Norman challengers and unhorses them effectively and fights well in the melee and all that. So yay, loud cheers. And we also get to see more of uh, Bois-Gilbert, who is, uh, mm-hmm. who is a Templar and who is uh, kind of set up as one of our one of our big antagonists and somebody who is now the champion of King John. Yes. There's more of the sort of personal antagonism dynamic between Bois-Gilbert and Ivanhoe in the miniseries than in the source material, which I think is an interesting choice. I would say that Bois-Gilbert is the only one of the three antagonists with brain cells. Um, <laughs> one of the distinguishing features. He's also like a really good hot villain, you know, just a yeah. man who's a bad idea. And yet. <laughs> yeah. And he is this, I mean, he has this kind of tragic element about him, especially mm-hmm. as they, as we go on. I think there yeah. are interesting things done with his character, which are not entirely what I expected going into this, especially going into this, not actually remembering very much of the book Ivanhoe. They joined together, they managed to, you know, beat the Normans and basically everything. And we are also introduced to the uh, the mysterious Black Knight, who hmm. I wonder who that is going to be. <laughs> Another person in disguise. I wonder if we've heard of him before. <laughs> Such a good time. We also do have a little bit of uh, the kind of initial already, like, just basically, oh, everybody's really into Ivanhoe. <laughs> and except for the people who are very not into Ivanhoe, but in particular, uh, women just fall for that large you know strawberry blonde man uh quickly and immediately yeah yeah i think it's the wholesomeness right he's mm-hmm. he's just a nice boy all the other men in those are trash basically and ivan right. ivanhoe you can take home to your parents who would treat you right 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 even even rebecca who actually could not take tragically true but yes rebecca ugh, rebecca deserves everything and this is yes. but yeah she she also yes. has on him yes so we move into our third episode. So Ivanhoe, despite his overall success, has been wounded in the tournament and uh, is tended to by Rebecca, therefore kind of planting additional seeds for that romance situation. It hurt um, yeah. Yes, got, and, you know, and a little bit, of, now a little bit starting of like a love triangle on our hands. Uh, gotta, gotta have two women for Ivanhoe to pick between. 
We also get some additional kind of wrenches thrown into Rowena's marriage plans as John informs Cedric that in fact he cannot just marry Rebecca his or sorry yeah Rowena these are somebody really should have thought that one through that Rowena cannot just simply be married to whoever he chose he chooses we need in fact the king's permission for this which I believe especially because she's his ward not his daughter actually would be the case yeah yeah you know so fair enough on that one he then suggests that instead we should have him married or we should have her married to one of my good friends uh so we can have this norman this great norman saxon union uh what is his name i wrote it down debracy yes debracy yes debracy is in some ways like the least horrible of the three main antagonists like there's Reginald Frontebeau like the most horrible just the worst yeah yeah and Bois Gilbert who's the one with brain cells and a tragic backstory and then Uh who is just uh just lacking in moral backbone like he's he's kind of like vaguely pretty and and vaguely Mm -hmm. yeah Debracy really seems like he just got mixed up with the wrong crowd (laughs) He does. He does. <laughs> that is who he is as a person. I think. Like uh, his mother could say, he's not a bad boy. He just got mixed right. up with the wrong people. Exactly. Exactly. I'm sure that's what she is saying somewhere in France while he follows around Reginald's front of it for some reason. And they also then come up with the plan where, as a way, of getting Rowena to actually like Debracy as opposed to just be forced into marrying him, we should have uh, some people disguise themselves as outlaws and capture them so then Debracy can dramatically and romantically rescue her. Right? This is such a bad plan. <laughs> it's such a bad plan. And this all just starts, they're like, this is great. And I'm like, you're basically like committing treason. Like, like what are you even doing? Hmm. <sighs> We also get to to meet Christopher Lee and to learn about what is happening in the Templar Order. He is going to purge the Templar Order of its, uh, I guess, less uh, uh, holy members. Yeah. So we, we get Christopher Lee as Luca de Beaumanoir, a, a zealot who is yes. out to reform this order root and branch while being, you know, Christopher Lee with all of the things. Yes. He also has this uh, kind of immediate underling Mm. who has this set of, I think they're like red tattoos on his head. Oh, no, it's his strawberry mark. So is it is it makeup? It's not the it's not natural to the actor, is it? Uh I have no idea, honestly. Okay. I I think it's makeup, but I like I But also, like, though I have seen this actor in other things, I don't think I've seen him with his head shaved in other things. So for right. all I know. Okay. Who knows? Like, yeah. Yeah. But it was kind of like, I, I was kind of wondering if it was just sort of there to basically kind of mark him as kind of bizarre and therefore villainous in some way, which is obviously not what I actually think about people who have such marks naturally. Right. But... So I was wondering, like, if it was intended that way like in the same way that like the trope of facial scarring is is meant to mark villains if that was meant as yeah, a exactly. similar signifier but i honestly have no idea yeah so we so have this possibly kind of a somewhat able signifier possibly just this random dude's strawberry mark we do not know 
Yeah, exactly. I I don't know. But we also have, uh, so they're kind of brought into this castle. And I think that is a uh, Font de Boeuf's castle, right? It is Font de Boeuf's castle, Torquilstone. It should be um, yes. Ivanhoe's castle, I think. But yeah, it's Torquilstone. He also has in this castle, this woman who our first introduction to her is just her kind of looking out and she goes, what do we have here, my precious? More chickens for the pot? And I'm just like, I don't know who this woman is, but she is my favorite person and I love her. (laughs) So this is none other than Kiaran Madden in her final film role. And she's great. So glad I got Kiaran Madden to do this. But yeah, um, Ulrika, real name, Urfried. She's a great character. It's like Walter Scott was like, I see, I see what Jane Eyre is doing. And what I really think mm-hmm. needs to happen is that the, um, some, you know, arguably insane abused woman needs more page time and needs to be able to talk to, about her experiences. So yeah, she is doing just that. Yeah, no, she is. She is excellent. I'm very fond of her. Yeah, she's great. She she's constantly described like in editorializing as like a hag and whatever, but she she really is a great character with agency and opinions and yeah, hag rights. Mm-hmm. Yeah, awesome. There's so much drama. Everyone is in the forest, right? So yes. um, so Rowena and crew are traveling home from the tournament and Rebecca and Isaac are also traveling home from the tournament, but like right. their, their wagon or their litter breaks down. I think they break an axle and then their servants desert them because they aren't staying in this forest after dark for the mere Jewish people who have paid the money. Um, right. Yeah, right. obviously. So, so poor Rebecca and Isaac are stranded with the badly wounded Ivanhoe in a litter. Rebecca successfully intercedes with Rowena and Rowena is like, don't be a jerk. Erzat's dad, like, let's take Rebecca and Isaac with us. Cause it's the right thing to do. So they end up all being together in the forest to be surrounded by the world's worst ambush. Yes, this like pathetic ambush. Because they realize immediately also that it's like, you're not an outlaw. Like you're just the person who's been bothering us this whole time. And they're like, don't worry about it. DeBracy, oh, DeBracy, DeBracy. He's just making terrible life decisions. And Front de Boeuf is along for the ride because he likes being a terrible person. And Exactly. Yeah, Front de Boeuf just wants to murder and harm people for funsies. It's yeah, really, he's, he's awful. Yeah. He, he's a sadist. Yeah. Boisguilbert at this point is like, I'm helping you to You should be grateful to me. I'm being so nice. Yeah. Right. Boisguilbert is like someone with brain cells needs to be on this expedition and it's <laughs> going to be me apparently. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. And to just like, what's going on? And then, you know, talks to Rowena and she's and he's like, it's because I really love you. And she's like, what? Yeah. Who are you? Rowena treats that gambit with the contempt it deserves from all women yes. in all times and in all places. Yes. Like I'm doing this creepy thing because I'm into you. And Rowena's like, mm, no, no, no we're going to, we're going to give a hard no to that one. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm good on that one. And uh, yeah. And so Ivanhoe, you know, is trying to kind of be the hero despite, you know, not being in the best of shape. And there's this great bit where he says to Bois Gilbert that, you know, will kill me and you confess your sin, which is not a great argument, I feel like. No, like, if there's one thing we know, it's that Bois Gilbert is really unbothered by his sins. He's Right, right. And also that actually killing point. him would make sense 
as a thing to do if it was truly the case that he thought Ivanhoe was a traitor. So he's really not confessing anything. And Ivanhoe is he's lost right. a lot of blood and isn't thinking clearly. I don't know. I'm with you. It doesn't actually make sense. But right. he is, he's having a rough day. Yeah. Yeah. We get, some, we get some more kind of, you know, solid anti-Semitism, of course. Um, we also get a John is furious about this whole decision. Well, it's the and, decision. Anyway, yes. And at some point, he has the kind of line where he's kind of, you know, talking to one of his underlings. He's like, is this sound serious? And he's like, you shall watch as I eat your liver for breakfast. And I'm like, ah, got a regular Hannibal right here. I had forgotten that line, but... But yes, now we, I, yeah, we get, so we get, you know, some good, like, anti-Semitism directed toward Isaac, unsurprisingly. And we also have Wagil Bear as he's falling for Rebecca and attempting to seduce her with the excellent pickup line. Man, I recommend this. Do you know how many godless harlots like you I've had? <laughs> it's, oh, it, it truly is the, the worst beginning. I mean, at least... Although, okay, so here's the thing, deeply terrible, but he is under no illusions about his own terribleness. Unlike Morris de Bracey, who is like, I'm going to be terrible, but it's actually a good thing. And Bois-Gilbert is like, no, but there are no moral laws here. What do you think of that? (laughs) So, yeah. And there are debates about faith and identity between Isaac and Rebecca here and some potential romance Mm -hmm. between Ivanhoe and Rebecca that get expensive expanded for the characters in this episode which I appreciate because in the novel they're mostly just Scott's chatty editorializing right. so here the characters actually get to have those debates about uh-huh. what does it mean to be Jewish in England like what does, yeah you know and Rebecca is keenly aware of the ways in which both her gender and her religion make yes. her vulnerable and to also make this budding romance between her and Ivanhoe an intensely poor idea yeah for everyone involved yeah and yeah. i will say i i do like that realism mm-hmm. I, d- I do like that everybody knows that this is this is not going anywhere good yeah it's true it's true they're a little bit sad about it but yeah also but they they know yeah it's true in episode four, we have our uh, our dramatic escape attempts. So on the outside of the castle, essentially they uh, they kind of people. I think it's um, Gerth and Wamba go to uh, Robin Hood and his merry men, as you do, as you do, to help you help you get all of these all of these nice Saxons and Jews uh, who are best friends uh, out of the castle. Well, and King Richard learns about what's been happening in his absence from Friar Tuck, yes. which is a good time. And I really like the moment outside the castle here where, um, you know, King Richard incognito still as the quote unquote Black Knight gives a motivational speech to the outlaws and Tuck and Robin Hood look at each other and like, he's he's done this before. <laughs> right, yeah. right. Yeah. Uh, and I do like that, you know, that he, he basically becomes less and less well disguised. And at some point, everybody's just like, we know you're Richard, right? Right? It's fine. Yeah, eventually. Yeah, that's a ways yeah. off. But yeah, he he essentially takes charge because he actually knows what he's doing in leading a siege, mm-hmm. unlike literally anyone else in this. Right, this yes. Company. Yeah, so, I mean, which which um, makes sense that that is a skill that he would have that these other people would not have, particularly. There's one thing that Richard knows how to do is lead a siege. Siege yeah. warfare. Siege warfare. <laughs> among his talents. Um, yeah. 
So he, he and Firetalk have their drinking competition interrupted in the interests of siege right. warfare and, and rescue. Yes. Meanwhile, in the exterior of the castle, we've got some uh, romance happening between Ivanhoe and Rebecca. Uh, so Rowena is not going to be pleased about this one. Oh, inside the castle. Yes, yes. Yeah, tender looks and words are exchanged. It's all, it's all very fraught. Yes, very, very intense, very fraught. They storm the castle. We've got this big pitched battle. And meanwhile, so Orfried, Orfried is having a grand old time. So I guess it is, uh, it's front to book, right? Who has kind of kept her captive. Yes, yes, it is. And she is not happy about this situation. And she's like, cool, everything is a disaster right now. So I'm going to take advantage of this to murder you, which is great. I'm totally pro this. Yeah, no, uh, murder awful serial rapist dudes. Um, yeah. Again, very, very pro Ulrika stance here. Yeah. Uh, front yes. of us is the great line, don't stand there gawping like some thunderstruck harpy. And she just, she just watches him die um, gleefully. Right. She also describes herself when she first comes in as thine own angel of death. Yes, I know. I am so great. Like, like I am my evil angel of front to both. She gets absolutely raw lines. It's absolutely great. Yeah. Oh yeah, no, she's excellent. And yep, yeah, and she gets burned alive. Bye. Yeah. <laughs> so and all terrible people. Um, it's it's good. It's good. I feel I should mention though before we conclude with episode four and the dramatic siege, come fire, come everything else. That while there are tender looks and words being exchanged between Ivanhoe and Rebecca. We also have a sort of enemies to lovers vibe that is intensifying between Rebecca and Bois-Gilbert as played by Yes, yes, we do. Hmm. And and that is actually how things kind of shake out in this battle. So Ivanhoe is rescued, but Ivanhoe and Rebecca both think that the other is dead. And Rebecca, meanwhile, has been taken off to Templestowe by Bois-Gilbert in the hopes, essentially, that he will, in fact, be able to successfully seduce her with eventually slightly improved upon pickup lines from his original effort. It's only uphill from there. Yeah. You can't get worse. So you got to get better, right? Yeah. <laughs> so yes, they think the other is dead. Uh, Athelstan appears to be dead at the moment as well. Oh, and also uh, Debracy, who at this point, again, Debracy is just way out of his league. Uh, Debracy does uh, swear his love and fealty toward uh, Richard, who reveals himself to him. Yeah, so the, in the in the final battle at Torquilstone, in which the castle is set on fire, and for a while we don't know about the life of Friar Tuck or Isaac, who both survived. Right. Um, yes. Athelstan has been struck down and, and killed, as as we suppose at this point. And Bracy is forced to yield and swear his fealty to Richard on the field of battle, as you mm-hmm. do. And of course, Richard, you know, reveals himself to Bracy, which is whole new levels of trouble. For yes. poor Debracy, who is very much in with the wrong crowd and in over his head. Yes. He, you know, I think reveals himself then more broadly and generally than to others as uh, King Richard in the, in the next episode. Meanwhile, John, first of all, John's having a great time essentially initially just making plans to execute his friends, but is then also called upon to preside over the inquisitorial trial, which is happening to sentence Rebecca as a witch. We'll get into it. Yep. That's that's one that we'll we'll delve we'll, into we'll, in some we'll detail. So we'll that. save that one for later. 
And, and while Gilbert, meanwhile, is desperately trying to talk Rebecca into marrying him, a yeah. thing that I have no idea how he plans on legally accomplishing. Well, in the book, he offers to convert for her. Really? Yeah. Huh. Because he, here he doesn't even say that. He just says, oh, we'll go somewhere that I'm so rich that nobody will slate my wife for being a Jew. And I'm like, who do you think, who do you think is marrying you? Who, who, who do you, you think are, is agreeing yeah. to this? Well, he also, like in the book also, he, he says, you know, we'll, we'll go to Palestine. We'll go to the Crusader yeah. States, essentially. And mm-hmm. in the Crusader States, like my name is powerful. I am powerful. I will set you up. Um, yeah. I mean, it's a fantasy, right? But he's like, I will set you up as a queen in the land of your ancestors. Like I, we will, we will carve out our own space. We will make our mm-hmm. own laws. Like I am prepared to overthrow, you know, the, <laughs> <so> the dumb. <laughs> well, yeah, no, literally. He's like, I will ignore the laws of both our religions and of every government right. man in order to spend to every day. Yeah. 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 Which is an offer. It <laughs> like, is certainly a much improved pickup line. He's been he's been steadily improving. The, the books, can we come back to the books line later also? Because I feel like this also shows an interesting knowledge of Rebecca's character. It's, right. it's an interpolation of the, the miniseries. But you know, when he says, you know, I'm rich enough. And Rebecca being Rebecca and being awesome interrupts him scoffing. And she says, mm-hmm. what, you're rich enough to buy me jewels? And he says, no, to buy you books. And you yeah. can see your eyes go wide, like, oh, that's a little uh-huh. like, oh, oh, mm-hmm. <laughs> like you're like, so oh, terrible, but, but. That's tempting. You're, yeah, yeah it's tempting. It's a good yeah. offer. It's like, for what, that yeah. is actually a good offer. And also yeah. I will say, it indicates that he kind of gets her, that he gets that she wants books, not jewels. Yes. I feel, so insofar, so we have on the one hand, the the love triangle between Ivanhoe, Rebecca, and Rowena. And on the other hand, we have Rebecca's like two ill-fated forbidden romance things with Ivanhoe yes. and Bear. And in the miniseries, I would argue the one with Bois Bear has, has more attention going on. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it, it might just be the, the kind of actors and their personal chemistry and mm. part, but I think that, yeah, that, re- that relationship, it almost is sort of tempted, you know, you can kind of see why she'd be tempted and they really have this kind of enemies to lovers chemistry. Yeah. And it is also, I mean, and that is one of the things that I do, I will say, have, have kind of mixed feelings about, right? Because it, yeah. on the one hand, I'm really glad that they didn't do the usual thing that you expect in this kind of narrative, uh, essentially, you know, where you just have sexual assault. Ooh, um, yeah. That yeah. that's the kind of thing, to be honest, I would have expected. And I was very relieved that that is not the direction that it went in. No. So I really appreciated that, especially with something that's kind of a gritty reboot. It would not have, like, that was kind of what I thought, where I thought things were going and they were not at all. And so I have a lot of appreciation for that. On the other hand, I feel like it really involved them taking a real turn in Wagil Bear's character, which was not set up until basically episode five. (sighs) Yeah, yeah. Oh, he's such a weird character. We can possibly come back to this as well. And and the yeah. question, like, what what his deal is? Because I think there's an interesting contrast in De Bracy, who is like, oh, I'm a nice guy, really, and Rowena being like, oh my god, no, you're not. And, right. And Wagil Bear 
It's just saying, you know, I, I, I may have had a conscience once, but those days are long behind me. Mm-hmm. But in actual fact, he's, he's less awful. Yeah. Yeah. That he's like, and then it is this kind of weird, like I'm unabashedly terrible, but I really love you. And I am going to act in this way that is not quite respectful, but more respectful than you would have thought. Yeah. That's where we are. That's where we are with him. Yeah. And that you have this real sense of his emotions and of his like, efforts at least at decency yeah problematic since 1819 yeah yeah and as I said like that is it is it like does it feel this way in the book too because I just didn't feel like it was set up that way in the miniseries he felt much more like clearly intelligent but sort of just unabashedly evil ah so I'm not sure I'm not sure that evil is quite the word I would use. Um, Walter Scott describes him as a man whose countenance betrays neither fear of earth nor awe of heaven. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Possibly evil. Like, and in the in the book, he he rants and raves and not if not quite threatens Rebecca. He's like, "Do you realize how vulnerable your position is?" And Rebecca uh-huh. is like, "I exist as a Jewish woman full time. You do not need to tell me how vulnerable my right. position is." Right. My position has always been vulnerable. Thank right. you. Yeah. But even as he's like, you know, you're alone, you're imprisoned in a castle and she's like, "Yes, you feel you you seem to believe that this constitutes like a different level of embodied danger Mm -hmm. for me and marginalization for me in ways it really doesn't, my guy, you don't know my life. Mm -hmm. But while they're having all these conversations, he never assaults her. He never lays a finger. Like, so so there's this tension. I think there's this genuine tension, which is, which is much, it becomes much more dramatically driven home in, in the novel, but this genuine internal tension for Bois Gilbert between mm-hmm. his long formed habits of not caring what either God or man might have to say right. about his actions, right? And basically just carving his own somewhat amoral way through society and, and having genuine feelings for a person, having genuine feelings for Rebecca in, in ways that it's weird to him not least yeah yeah no it's 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 weird I I have extremely mixed feelings about pretty much everything happening there yes same I'm glad I'm not the only one I'm like I'm conflicted emotionally yeah yeah Yeah. the Templar Grand Master meanwhile is (laughs) so not here for the situation oh like do you realize how many elements of canon law you have violated yeah, I mean, you know, Christopher Lee is obviously very kind of cartoonishly villainous in this role, and that is the choice they made, and that's fine. But at the same time, there's a part of me that's like, from a canon law perspective, he's not wrong right. about this one. Like, he's not wrong that, like, his, like, plan of, I'm going to run off to the Crusader <laughs> states and marry this Jewish woman, like, that, he's not wrong that that's an issue. Like, you have taken vows, my guy. <laughs> like, yes. Yeah. So, yeah. So yes, um, Luca de Pomenoir is a terrible zealot. Conrad de Montfichet is Vino. All these Templars are terrible people. However, from a canon law perspective, not wrong. But he does, however, uh, first of all, we have this kind of extremely oddly kind of half-assed forced baptism of Isaac, which is basically he just like dips his finger in some holy water and kind of boops him on the forehead. 
And then says, do you accept Christ? And Isaac is like, no. And he's like, well, I baptize you. You're a heretic now. What struck me, like, it's an invalid conversion. It's an invalid force oh, yeah. according to canon law. Yeah. What struck me in the miniseries is its violence, though. Yes. Yeah, on the one hand, yeah, it's, it's just one finger. But at the same time, Isaac is in Templestow, he's in the courtyard, you know, yeah. of property owned by the Templars. He's being forcibly restrained. And also, Luca de Beaumanoir is Christopher Lee. So like, yeah. if Christopher he's Lee, very if Christopher, like if Christopher Lee is coming towards you, like that's an inherently terrifying experience. And I say this with love uh, for the late lamented Christopher Lee, who was apparently of a lovely person. But, um, but yeah, no, he's just legitimately terrifying. And it's a, it's a really unsettling moment. And maybe mm-hmm. we can come back to this as well. But I think what yes. I appreciate about the miniseries, as we said in episode one as well, is the ways in which it does not sugarcoat right. the existence right. of Jews as a religious and ethnic minority in England. Anyway, yeah. Yeah. And I do like that kind of sense of sense of precarity in some way, right? Mm-hmm. That this violence and this forced baptism is something that is something that Jews face. Uh, there's just also a little nitpicky part of me that's like, I wish this had been an actual baptism. <laughs> Yeah, right. Like, that's not how baptism works. You need to consecrate it. And you like, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and also at this period, you would have more of an immersion. In a baptistry. Yeah. I mean, because certainly when you have uh, images of uh, adult Mm. Jews being baptized, those are, they're they're in a baptismal font. Yeah, just in the font. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so I just had this kind of weird, like, it's it's just like, did, did you think it was too much effort to like get that much water? Like... (laughs) <laughs> we couldn't hold on to him that long yeah i don't know, right. I don't know. Uh, anyway but yes yeah, so i do think this kind of precarity is well done but uh but yes and we also at this point he uh starts uh, uh bowen wall starts basically kind of putting together the plans to have rebecca tried as a witch yeah i mean which in the book gets more that you know she's committed the awful awful crime of practicing medicine i mean here his concern mm-hmm. is that clearly Clearly, right? She's she's a witch because she has bewitched, led astray, etc. Brand de Bois Gilbert, who in the estimation, otherwise this nice, lovely man never would have done anything wrong. No, here's the thing: like Bois Gilbert, terrible person, but terrible person who could conceivably take over the leadership of the order mm-hmm. after Beaumanoir. So it's not that they are under any illusions about like his moral fiber, but they do view him as intensely a- and even single-mindedly committed to the order and to mm-hmm. its cause, if you will. It's it's thriving, right? Because he, he has no other ties. Mm-hmm. And certainly, at least, if nothing else, to the pursuit of his own power. Right, his and own this right? is <laughs> not a good move for him, politically speaking. That's a terrible move for him, politically it speaking. It really is. It really is. Hmm. We do also hear that John has uh, written to Eleanor as the only person who could possibly mediate between him and Richard. So we have that set up. She's just so done, and I love her. I know. I absolutely adore her. We have our inquisitorial trial. The accusations uh, include, have you abstained from Christian duties? And she's like, yeah, I'm Jewish. (laughs) This trial was 
I don't know, this trial was actually the moment where I kind of felt like the writing could have maybe used a little bit of work because there are certainly ways in which you see in real medieval inquisitorial trials and early modern witchcraft trials, ways in which they're twisting people's words and adding in these things kind of here and there. But it's also this, this kind of weird way in which it, I don't know, the way that they're twisting her words doesn't even seem particularly smart. It's a hot mess yeah. based on um, Sir Walter Scott's representation of her quote unquote witch trial, which is also a hot mess. Bois Gilbert in the book says, will future ages ever believe that such stupid bigotry existed? <laughs> well, that's a right, new so one. It's, yeah, so it seems almost deliberate because you're yeah. not saying that there wasn't bigotry, but it was right. not that stupid. It's not that stupid, exactly. No, the bigotry is smarter. That's not a compliment, but the bigotry is smarter. Yeah. I mean, because that actually makes it more terrifying, right? That there is huh. real intelligence and skill that is brought to bear on these horrific persecutions of people who are accused of heresy, uh, which would include at various points people who say you know, were Jews who converted to Christianity and then, or, you know, by force perhaps, and we're not thrilled about that, you know, as well as in, again, a later period, people who are accused of witchcraft. So A of all, it's legally wrong and B of all, it's wandered in from several centuries later and probably a geographically distinct point. Yeah, it's all a mess. Legally, it doesn't make sense. Culturally, it doesn't make sense. Um, You know, in, in, they just basically bribe malicious witnesses and are Mm -hmm. out to eliminate Rebecca as a Mm -hmm. a threat to Mm -hmm. the coherence of the Templar order. Mm -hmm. Uh, I also especially love the bit where she is, uh, so they accuse her of eating wild animals. And that's one of the bit where they're like, you forgot to answer that charge. And she's basically like, what? This is ridiculous. And he's like, yep, put it down that she thinks eating wild animals is no sin, or like eating live animals is no sin. And then at some point, there's also this bit where it's like, it turns out that it's our good friend Fang, who she has been accused of eating. And John even is like, it's accused of eating that dog? That dog over there? Because that dog looks fine to me. This is a bit where they're, uh, where the miniseries is trying to connect threads of plot that were never really connected <laughs> in the book, which I think is a is a worthy uh, objective, really. Um, so in the beginning, right, Fang has been uh, declawed by a forester. Yeah. I know, poor puppy. The worst. Um, and the forester in the miniseries, having been clawed by Fang, fair enough, goes off to have his arm treated by Rebecca. But he right. is then, he, he when Rebecca says that she herself is a doctor, he says, well, there's laws against that sort of thing, which there aren't. But yeah. the forester is like offended, A of all, by her existence as a Jewish woman and B of all, by her refusal of his gross sexual advances. Yeah. So, so the forester has it in for her, which is right. what brings this, you know, fang plot point back into back. Into right. But since, of course, the dog is just sitting there and is perfectly fine and happy at this point, uh, then there's the, at some point, like, then Chris really is like, oh, uh, witches, they can revive the animals that they've eaten to hide their crimes. Yeah, that's it. And again, I'm just like, they're not that stupid. She turned me into a newt. <laughs> Yes, exactly. That's the vibe that it has. And that at least is consciously parody, whereas this, I don't think is. Yeah, no, it's all very, it's all very odd. Yeah. Bob Gilbert is sort of, is somewhat defending her in this context and actually does so by uh, stealing her own lines, 
that she has this line where he's like kind of, you know, talking her and trying to talk her into things, you know, by an appeal to reason. And she goes, and she says, like, reason has no place here. It's it's a sexy echo, right? She she yeah. said to him earlier in the castle, she says, reason is a gift from God to civilize yes. and it has no place here. And and so he brings this back against Luca de Beaumanoir and you see her like, oh, like I he listens. There. And um, <laughs> no one no one is making good decisions. This cannot end well, but No, yeah. but it is like, you know. I'm not saying she should have been into him, but I am saying that a man who clearly listens to you, maybe not the easiest thing to find. Right? (laughs) Clearly listens to her, pays attention, would buy her books, is played by Karen Hines. Like, there you have a lot of him. Except for him being vaguely horrible. It's a great, he's a great catch. Yeah. (laughs) Minor minor details, (laughs) but... Horrible. <laughs> so she's condemned. She requests trial by combat while at Gilbert. Yes, at his suggestion. And then while Gilbert is chosen as the champion of the Templars. The, I love Walter Scott. He's like, I shall make the romantic tension worse. <laughs> yes. I will also note, by the way, that I had not entirely processed that that was PR and Hines. And it was until, and this episode was actually exactly, was actually like when it hit me that that was Kieran Hines. Uh, uh Mm -hmm. Two years after his his memorable turn as um, the best Jane Austen hero, Captain Wentworth. Mm -hmm. And a number, and still a number of years before his uh, also very memorable turn in Rome. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Julius Caesar. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah, he is. He is, I think, the... He is my Julius Julius Caesar. He is the Julius Caesar of my heart. It's a good yeah. casting. It's a good casting. It is. Well, Gilbert also basically lets Isaac escape uh, because he is supposed to be on trial for heresy. As, as uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, absolutely. And we also have John, I love, who has been, uh, you know, presiding <laughs> over this trial, who at some point just gets fed up and at some point, you know, then, uh, and um, Beaumanoir thinking about accusing him of heresy. And he goes, whether I be heretic or no, I shall not suffer interference from Rome, which given the like subsequent history of John's reign, I'm like, oh, buddy, let me know how that works out for you. I know. I, I liked that little <laughs> nod to the interdict. Yeah. So someone has been doing their reading about John mm-hmm. and the choreography and, and is mm-hmm. having a good time with that. Mm-hmm. We now, with uh, this kind of drama, right, we have this trial by combat. Somebody needs to show up by noon the next day. We understand that Isaac will be riding off to fetch Ivanhoe. And so this is, of course, what we are leading to for our climactic moments in episode six. Rowena. Oh, Rowena. Rowena uh, has been informed that she's supposed to be in mourning for her fiancé. And she's just like, I do not care. Nothing will make me care. Poor Rowena has had a rough few days and she just wants to snuggle her boyfriend and I support her. Yeah. 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 And dad both makes up with his son. Cedric both makes up with his son and ends up agreeing to their marriage. Yeah. It's very, it's very touching actually. It is. is. It's a very, it's a very nice reconciliation scene. It is. Again, I think James Cosmo is really ideal casting mm-hmm. for Cedric. It's it's really great on, on a number yeah. of levels. Yeah, and especially because he has that. I mean, he has, again, that kind of, he's very gruff, but he also can can do real emotion. Yeah. Uh, and ways that I think kind of work really well. And I and that was a very, very nice scene. 
And, and it's also like, I kind of like the two of them as father and son too, because they have like kind of very similar sort of like burly builds. Uh, they, they do. Yeah. You can believe in them. Yeah. 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 And they're both, they both, they both, again, they have this kind of like vibe of being like nice, large Nordic men. Yeah. <laughs> they look like they give good hugs. Yeah, exactly. And they, and they have a good hug. They have a nice, good, like, bear hug, like, you know, man bear hug uh, to, as they reconcile. Athelstan, however, dude's not dead. That dude just, like, like, rises up and walks on into the party like he's Jesus. And everybody loses their goddamn minds. As, as is perfectly natural when the guy whose funeral you're holding walks into the party. Like, I feel like everyone losing their uh-huh. shit completely. Uh-huh. Accurate. Yeah, no, Walter Scott just straight up resurrects Athelstan. I think because of um, basically, like, reader, compl- you know, a, an early draft, like, people were really mad that he mm. killed Athelstan off. If I'm recalling correctly, like, his publisher was mad at him or something. But yeah, episode, I really like that episode six in the miniseries opens with the women who are sewing Athelstan's shroud. Like, right. Yeah. A lot of work of making women's presence work, mm-hmm. you know, visible mm-hmm. in ways that it's yeah. not always in the, in the book. So I, I give them mm-hmm. big for that and his funeral gets some like made up but sort of vaguely plausible hybrid religion in which there's a right. who's a cheerful and non-judgmental participant and then friar tuck is at the beer which avoids having different gluttonous monks and priests introduced which scott does just for reasons so anyway fun um yeah so allison's not dead yay surprise yeah, and in his resurrection, I also love that there is very little explanation for this. It's essentially just that they're like, we thought you were dead. And he's like, no, I was good. I'm good, guys. Yeah. Um, just concussed in a coma, question mark. Yeah, that's it. It seemed it, like I wasn't breathing properly. I mean, because people can tell if people are breathing. Oh, people could tell there were just It's all very hand wavy, but Sir Walter just got put it in there. So it just... It yeah, yeah, and... And with his resurrection, he is suddenly uh, quite gracious uh, and has kind of given up on all of his worldly ambitions from before he, you know, became Jesus, I guess. I think those ambitions were always more Cedrex than Athelstan's. True, Athelstan was like along for the ride, but but yeah, he's not going to he's not going to ride roughshod over Rowena and Ivanhoe's obviously yeah. for each other. Yes. And- a, a nice touch, I think, mm-hmm. in, in this resurrection scene, as you put it in the miniseries, is that Allison actually invokes the civil war that happened, which yes. is nice, nice that not yeah. everyone has collective amnesia about that. And he takes initiative in this political reconciliation, mm-hmm. which is dependent yeah. on Richard's oath of good lordship as well yes. as Cedric's oath of loyalty. So I do like a good yeah. good set of medieval oath taking, you know, acknowledging reciprocal yes. lordly obligations. So, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I did like that. And and I also, as I said, I find I found it so interesting as a scene because on the one hand, there is this kind of element of Athelstan actually always seemed like a relatively decent guy. Mm-hmm. He also 
in addition to that, there is some kind of amount of, you know, I mean, I almost died. Life's too short. Uh, I will, you know, make these kind of choices, but it is also, there's a little bit of this just kind of weird vibe at where you see like his literal resurrection and that he's kind of wandering dressed in white and the way the lighting is on him, he almost kind of looks like haloed and he's just like going and like magnanimously like being like, no, I will give up my claims to a future Saxon kingdom and I would never interrupt your love. And it's just like, and I, I just find it very interesting. Yeah, I, it is It is a choice to have him bear like a, a, a more than vague resemblance to like medieval illustrations of Jesus. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. more like secondary, early 20th century Sunday school illustrations of Jesus. Yeah. But, but, you know. Yeah, he's very much that kind of like, well, you're, you're sort of muscly blonde Jesus that you see in certain, like, I feel like Protestant uh, iconography in particular. Uh-huh. Yeah. Like a certain brand of American Protestantism. Isaac shows up and, uh, of course, wants Ivanhoe to come with him to have Rebecca or to, you know, fight on behalf of Rebecca. And Rowena is also definitely jealous. Yeah, she's she's not thrilled about her convalescent boyfriend slash fiance having to ride off to defend Rebecca's honor in the lists, which yeah, on the one hand, I feel is slightly unfair to Rowena in framing this as, as essentially romantic envy. Yes. But from the point of view of a woman who has just gotten her boyfriend back and does not want him, you know, riding off to risk his life in mm-hmm. single combat while still convalescent. I'm, I'm right with her there. She has I wish a- that had been more of the framing of just her being like, I'd really like you to not die as opposed to that. We get a definite vibe of this kind of romantic jealousy. Yeah, which which seems unfair to her. Yes. And, and their relationship. Yeah. Meanwhile, Rebecca is uh, being prepped for her burning at the stake. Yeah, Beaumanoir's ultra creepy description of the like order in which parts of her body will be burned. <laughs> and that truly, <laughs> to give him credit, is having the best time like it's a great performance christopher lee is going to give you your money's worth in the ways in which he recites about the melting of flesh and the cracking of bone and it's extremely gross and And he delivers your true self to all of the men who lust after you which i'm i'm paraphrasing but that's the kind of vibe oh yeah first your clothes will burn off just so we're clear on what's happening and yeah Oh, it's an absolutely horrifying sequence, which Christopher Lee delivers with great orotund relish. Right. And they're like, this is how long you'll be able to watch what's going on before your eyes melt. And it's like, yeah. <laughs> little, little importation from Hammer Horror there. Yeah. Right. And it, it is an excellent performance. It also very much kind of adds into the like typical, we'll say, inquisitor for the sake of argument portrayal of inquisitors as really these just kind of pure sadists which is something that is quite common and that I often you know the inquisition is bad enough without just kind of making them into sadistic cartoon villains absolutely absolutely well I think doing an excellent job at that (laughs) well it's another one of these layered medievalisms right I feel like yes you know inquisitors as you know sadists and also like lustful sadist mm-hmm. at that like since Carl Theodor Bayel's um Passion of Joan of Arc 19 yeah. mm-hmm. 
Um, uh-huh. So I think he's very Absolutely. in a long line of gruesome cinematic inquisitor. Oh, yes. Oh, absolutely. Yes, this is... see, um, if not strictly medieval inquisitors, right? At least going back mm-hmm. a cent- in a century in film. And I mean, even Verity. I mean, if you look at Verity's uh-huh. opera with the Grand Inquisitors, the worst mm-hmm. also. Yeah. Yeah. No, this is very, very much far from the first time that I've, you know, had had reason to talk about this particular trope on this podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it is very much a trope. And it's it's one that I find irritating. But also, I mean, if somebody's got to do it, it obviously should be Christopher Lee. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He is doing an excellent job. They continue to prepare for the execution. Uh, I also love that Christopher Lee complains that she has that Rebecca has the impertinence to quote our own psalms. At him, at which his uh, his uh, little henchman reminds him of. To be fair, they were hers first. Yeah, I think, I think you'll find <laughs> they're, they're, they're her psalms. We kind of adopted them. That's got like, <laughs> yeah. Like it's, I'm like I'm. I'm not sure that somebody in this particular context would have said that, but I'm glad that in this mini series somebody said that. Yeah, if that makes yeah. sense. Uh, <laughs> that somebody like remind. I'm, I'm glad somebody reminded the audience of that. Ha, yeah, yeah. And he's like, well, no, none of them belong to the devil. So. Yeah, like it's, yeah. Uh, Which is, which is a really unsettling example of of inquisitorial logic. Like maybe they were hers first, Mm -hmm. but she's a witch. So they're not hers now. Yeah. Right. And of course we also have this immense amount of slippage, I would say in the inquisitorial trial in general, and in the way that we see Belenois talk between essentially Jews and devils in ways that I think has some connections to real medieval anti-Judaism, but also some elements that are kind of interpolated for plot. Yeah, right. I mean, practicing Jewishness, practicing witchcraft, practicing satanic what's it? It's right. There is a, it's, they're presented as very murky and porous categories. Right, which I don't think they were to quite that extent in terms oh, of the no, way no, no, people no, are talking I, about things. No, no, in no, the no. This is very much uh, just kind of imported and laid on the 12th century. Yes. And, you know, it's not as though the 12th century never did anything wrong, but this particular set not, of ideological yeah. convictions is just kind of smooshed in there. Right. Ivanhoe is en route. We initially have the not quite as dramatic as I expected attention of he's running late because he got lost in the woods, but he is then waylaid by assassins temporarily. So that uh, kind of adds the uh, the drama that we are looking for in terms of having to kind of go through this uh, this battle in, uh, in the woods while he manages to make it uh, finally to uh, Templestowe to uh, fight on behalf of Rebecca. Yeah, I kind of resent that interpolated battle, to be perfectly honest, because... In the book, he finds, I think, King Richard defending himself against assassins. But here, they kill off poor Gerth, who lives happily ever after in the book. And Gerth, yes. Gerth deserves to live happily ever after with his dog. Um, I know, that poor dog. I, I'm, I mostly care about the dog, I'll be honest. But it's, Gerth is, it's sad. It's sad for the dog to lose its person. It is, it is very sad for Fang to lose Gerth. Um, and... Yeah, I think this is an attempt to give Ivanhoe like more chivalric time than he actually uh-huh. gets in the book. Like in the book, the drama is 
will Ivanhoe arrive like and be able to sit his horse in order to joust right and Brock bear properly? Like the drama is, is our boy gonna hold it together, you know, despite recent grievous wounding and convalescence? Yeah. And this is a very, a very kind of cinematic trope. I feel like that you, people get very seriously injured in film and television. And when it's not convenient for the plot for them to remain severely wounded and not at their best, especially when that person is supposed to be our dramatic battling hero, those injuries go away quite quickly. Uh, And so it's like we go from, you know, Rowena being justifiably very concerned about him, you know, not being able to actually like make this ride and also then, you know, be in a combat at the end and survive that. We then kind of go from that to, I'm just going to casually be involved in this pitched battle in the woods and I will be completely fine. Yeah. uh, Which to give the miniseries like minimal credit for, for the miraculous recovery true, but like at least we have a sequence of him being convalescent at Torquilstone and at the Priory mm-hmm. afterwards and like, you know, non-zero sort of recovery training. But, but yeah, it's it, the, the filmic adaptations of Ivanhoe have without exception been unable to resist like making Ivanhoe mm-hmm. like more of a warrior hero on the page uh-huh. that actually makes him. Like, yeah. I think in many ways, yeah, I think in many ways his his role in the book is is more interesting for the ways in which he defies those tropes. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's true. Here, here we are not deprived of the expected dramatic showdown joust yes. fight. Yes. And I will mm-hmm. note that we have kind of these hints here and there that one of the things that marks him out, right, is that he is supposed to be somebody for whom uh, intelligence as opposed to mere military prowess is something that kind of sets him apart and that makes him this kind of particularly fitting hero. And I feel like we kind of lose that in a lot of ways as the miniseries goes on, where they really just kind of have to want to have us watch him dominating in battle, essentially. Yeah. It's Which true. is very common as a trope, I think, in, fil- in filmic things. Mm-hmm. He does show up and we have our combat. I actually was kind of, again, I have, I, do, I remember so little about the book. I was kind of assuming that Bois Gilbert was maybe just going to very obviously kind of throw the battle. Yeah. In terms of, you know, a medievalist who watches a lot of bad medieval movies, I think the fight is really satisfying. I mean, the actors did mm-hmm. all their own stunts and, and you can tell, I mean, they, yeah. they're, they're, it's, it's, it's exciting to watch. It looks like a, you know, a realistic fight, but no, um, in an earlier adaptation of the book, he does essentially throw the fight in the book, even more dramatically, he essentially like, <laughs> his emotions sort of throw the fight for him in, uh-huh. in he just dies. He drops dead. Like, oh like, 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 Scott, like, like, like has a heart attack or something so, and dies. Yeah. No. So Scott basically says that he is physically incapable because mentally wow. unwilling to take to the lists against against Rebecca's champion, uh-huh. his, his pride. And there are extended conversations about this in the book and in the miniseries mm-hmm. in which Bois Gilbert says that, you know, his, his pride is, is perhaps the one thing that he's never 
sacrificed. And so he, he won't back down from the fight. Like he can't sacrifice his honor by not taking the lists now that he's been commanded, right. To fulfill his oath and, and take the lists against her, even though he planned to take the lists as her champion. But as Sir Walter Scott frames it, he turns out to be in the most literal sense, incapable mm-hmm. of, of fighting like against the interests of the woman he loves question mark like right yeah right. so whereas yeah. here he does actually seem to be trying yeah yeah as a matter of of pride and perhaps resentment against ivanhoe etc um, uh-huh. but is not successful and uh i'm just gonna give a a shout out to the closed captioning here because i'm 90 and i watch everything with the closed captioning that the closed captioning's representation of ivanhoe's initial blow which uh gets gets his eye out yeah uh the captioning is head squelches oh oh oh, gross (laughs) (laughs) but but oh yeah Mm. Okay. And it's squelches is the correct word, everyone. Squelches, accurate. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Ivanhoe is victorious. Beaumanoir apparently uh, did not get the memo that if you have a trial by combat, you can't just then go and kill everybody if you don't like the way it goes. But uh, fortunately, they've got their whole little army, you know, there to kind of point arrows at everybody. So they're able to get out of it successfully. The forces of virtue and Robin Hood are there to yes. make sure that, that all is well. Yes. I will say, I always just kind of half forget that I'm like, oh, right, that's Robin Hood just here. Robin Hood, yeah. <laughs> what would the 12th century be without him, Sarah? Oh, right, exactly. The 12th century. You can't, <laughs> you can't set a movie in or a miniseries in 1190s England and not have Robin show, Hood show up. It is known. Yes. My personal opinion is, of course, that I'd be fine if Robin Hood didn't show up, but you can't have the 12th century without Eleanor of Aquitaine showing up, as she does. <laughs> she does. And I love that she just rides on in. She is, uh, I think, uh, oh, I didn't write it down, but I think she's wearing a kind of very, like, brilliant shade of, like, cobalt blue. Mm-hmm. And is, like, very much, I think, kind of, like, the most colorful person in the film, which, although, I, you know, I think everybody in general, people should be more colorful than they are. But Eleanor, in particular, being the most colorful person in the room, always kind of tracks. She comes in, she informs her sons that, you know, you they find her in a state of fury that would shake the foundations of hell and send the devil himself running for shelter. Oh, and such a good calls line. them both curdle-brained ninnies, which is just yes. And also at some point says, I have no patience with a weak, vain, glorious, self-indulgent men. She just is not here for either of them, and I adore it. Yes, this is correct, Eleanor of Aquitaine Energy. It absolutely is, especially because I will say I uh, I just actually had to or had the pleasure of rewatching Lion in Winter. Yes, uh, it's one of my favorites, and it's uh, I teach it in my medieval at the movies course. It's you know one of the kind of bright spots in that course, as opposed to the coming week where I have to force myself to watch King of Heaven. Um, oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> It will be a struggle, but, you know, but, but that really is, you know, Eleanor, you know, I mean, Catherine Hepburn as Eleanor is obviously peak Eleanor, but this, I feel like has, okay. I feel like she's kind of drawing on that kind of energy here. And it is, and truly excellent. Uh, Sean Phillips gets a great, great performance in her brief turn as Eleanor in this. Yes. She ultimately basically says, I think you're both garbage. 
but also, and like, and I guess it's partially my fault because I gave birth to both of you. Um, but now basically we can't have this just kiss and make up and deal with each other. Everyone has knives and we're all barbarians. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Kiss and make up. Richard. Oh, Richard. Richard now restored to his position as king gets to uh, get, get pretty execution happy. Uh, oh, I think we forgot to mention at some point somebody murdered Debracy. Oh, Prince John has Debracy yes. murdered in order to cover up his crimes, which is less, yes. less explicit in the book, at least. We also have the uh-huh. equivalent of like medieval paper shredding in a scene with Prince John who's trying to cover up his crimes. Right, that he kills the uh, the forester, right? So and to him too. There's there's just a lot of um, politically emoti- motivated assassination right. going on. John, yeah. John is such a mess, but he's hilarious. Yeah. I know that yeah, he's just kind of killing all these people who have like done him favors that were a bit uh, a bit not not above board. I think for I think for one of them at some point he was like, "Come closer, so I can give you your reward." And then the reward is stabbing, stabbing. Uh, it so often is in these situations. Yeah. Absolutely. Oh yes. At this point, you know, he uh, gets kind of execution happy. So anybody who is in his power to execute, he uh, I think does condemn. Richard does. Yeah, there's at least a couple of people that he says that he's condemning to death. Oh, I have totally forgotten this. I'm so sorry. I That, oh, we have this kind of whole scene, right, where he's kind of going through the punishment for everybody. And I think anybody, the couple of people who are still around, other than John, obviously, who are English, I think he actually does condemn to death. Oh, Waldemar Fitzers, maybe? Yes, yeah. I know he banishes all the Templars, which is not a thing. Yes, yeah, he he banishes the Templars from England. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, I, I, the, the executions must have just washed over me when I, when I rewatched this. But he does, he does sentence Waldemar Fitzers, played by the delightful yes. Ronald Pickup, who mm-hmm. played Prince John, interestingly, in an earlier oh. adaptation of Ivanhoe in the 1980s. But yeah, here he is the satisfactorily scheming henchman of John. Yes. Uh, yeah, so we don't yeah. we don't see any executions. No. We just have a kind of Richard dispensing okay. justice. And so, you know, if you're if you're kind of in his power, then it's execution. And if you're not, then it's exile, essentially. Yeah. yeah. The, the Templars are kicked out of England. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about it. Ivanhoe marries Rowena. However, it turns out that they that not all is well in paradise, uh, that this uh, they are not quite so happily married as you would have anticipated. And I did not like this move. Yeah. yeah, that it says that they have not slept together and that the reason they have not slept together is because every time they are about to, Rowena imagines him in the arms of that witch. Yeah, I I also am not a fan of this choice. Um, what the miniseries is left with is Sir Walter Scott basically tying up all the threads of his plot in a very great hurry and basically editorializing the heck out of it. He spends the most time with Rebecca mm-hmm. and basically just tries to tie up all his loose ends very abruptly with varying degrees of success. And he he tells us that Ivanhoe and, Re- and Rowena do live more or less happily ever after, even if Ivanhoe thinks more often or more tenderly of Rebecca than Rowena might altogether approve. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I there were better choices that could have been made because I, I think there are, yeah, all sorts of, sort of elements of complexity you could explore with Ivanhoe and Rowena 
finally yes. getting together after five years of separation and Ivan Ho's mm-hmm. kind of rough time. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. And one way and another. But mm-hmm. but yeah, it, it places Rowena again, I think, in an unfair, like in an unfair light. Yeah. But and- it opens the door for her conversation with Rebecca, yes. sort of reconciliation with Rebecca. Yeah, for me, I guess I felt like, so what bothered me in some ways the most was actually the, was actually her choice of using the term witch in some ways is actually what most bothered me, that it's not just jealousy, which was, I don't know, not the most sympathetic emotion, but certainly an understandable emotion and one in which many of us have experienced, but that she then in her jealousy had then is kind of repeating these uh, false and deeply damaging and cruel and near fatal accusations. Yeah, it's unfair. It's unfair to Rebecca and it's unfair to Rowena, who previously yeah. we have seen treating Rebecca as unequal. And yeah, bad. like it's, it seems deeply out of character for her. Yeah. And so it just, yeah, it just struck me as very unfair to her as a character to, to have her essentially kind of latch onto that in her jealousy that you could, you could have jealousy while still having more kind of respect for her as a person, I guess. Please. Yeah, absolutely. But they do have this reconciliation, which is fundamentally reliant in a lot of ways in uh, in this miniseries on Rebecca essentially lying, right? That she says that she and Ivanhoe never loved one another. You've got it all wrong. We're just very good friends. He's mm-hmm. only ever loved you. Yes. Which is a, a charitable oversimplification. The very Yes. Yeah. Yes. And, you know, because... Uh, and I don't think that that's a bad, you know, had this been a real situation, I don't think that's a bad thing. Obviously, for practical reasons, the two of them were never going to actually be together. Mm-hmm. And her then saying something along those lines doesn't actually bother me. It does, however, have the effect of making this scene between the two of them, which in some ways is very nice. It has elements also where it makes that scene very much all about Ivanhoe. Ah, the Bechdel test problem again. Yeah, yes. like we we can't get away from Ivanhoe either in the scene between scenes plural between Rowena and Algitha or the scenes between mm-hmm. Rowena and Rebecca, which yeah is is an over oversimplification. Yeah, and I I wish they'd given them more of a chance to to have a relationship on their own terms. It's what they deserve. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. I think that would have been nice, and it would have been nice if they're was some element of something like that in that scene as opposed to it just being yeah the scene that really is kind of fundamentally about Ivanhoe and not really about their relationship with each other in the book interestingly enough Rowena like basically invites Rebecca to to stay and says look Mm -hmm. you know we we owe you like I owe you my husband's life my husband owes you his life and Rebecca is like, no, no, I, I came here to say thank you because he actually saved my life in a, in a trial by ordeal. And Rowena's like, no, no, like we're even, we're in your debt. And also Ivanhoe has the ear of the king. So like, I realized that you kind of have it rough, but you could stay and like his favor would be enough essentially to protect you. And Rowena and Rebecca tells her that she does not understand the nature of systemic prejudice. <laughs> which right, right. Is- it, which is true. Harsh, but not unfair. Uh, and, and I, I wish we'd gotten, I wish we'd gotten that scene actually. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. It, it would have been, it would have been interesting. We could have, we could have fit it right. in there. We could have, we could have gotten right. rid of a gratuitous ambush or something, and and gotten yes, Serena and Rebecca. Yes, 
Instead, we learn that Isaac and Rebecca are going off to Spain, where they will also have systematic prejudice, but at least they'll, their, their descendants will at least be able to stay in more or less the same place for longer. Less of it, yeah. And yeah. arguably, yes, arguably less uh, systematic prejudice, or at least uh, kind of less governmentally sponsored such, and they'll be yes. more stable for a longer period of time. An important distinction, more stable for a longer period of time. The bar is so low, but yeah, they're, yes. going, to, they're yes. going to emigrate, uh, they're going to emigrate to Spain. And that is uh, is where we end. Yeah. Isaac and Rebecca riding off, not quite into the sunset. Rowena and Ivanhoe reunited at Rotherwood. The end. Yeah. So at this point, we can now move into the Vera at Falso section, <laughs> where we talk about what this got right and wrong. Oh. And highlighted a few just kind of big things. So first of all, I will say in terms of some of the kind of outlines of the broader politics with Richard and John and our brief introduction of Eleanor, we're on the right track, more or less. Yeah. Solid effort. Yeah. Actual representation of the Angevin Empire as a thing that exists and as a player in international politics. And like, I appreciate also that while, you know, so many medieval media are just set in England, um, this is at least in England that is set in a wider world that exists. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. And there's an awareness of that. I also, as I said earlier, I'm always appreciative when things acknowledge that the reason that Richard was out of the kingdom for so long wasn't in fact just the Crusades. There's this whole imprisonment in Austria situation. And so I always, I always like when that gets incorporated. As I said, also, I'm always a sucker for anything that acknowledges that Eleanor is this woman who retains this real political power in the form of influence over her sons. Mm -hmm. And so I have a lot of appreciation for that. Definitely. Then there is the Saxon-Norman conflict. I mean, this, this is the, in a sense, the, the origin story of so many Robin Hood adaptations. Uh, yes. and, you know, I think in many ways, the, the medieval media that present this Saxon and Norman ethnic conflict as are, drawing on this. are drawing on that. It's the setup yeah. of chapter one and it's, it's pervasive for, for yeah. some. Not, not quite made up out of whole cloth, but also very much drawing on his own historical context with the legal disadvantages of, you know, Scotland versus England, say nothing about Ireland. So Mm -hmm. in terms of, um, you know, multi, you know, generations old conflicts that have left long scars and systematic, uh, you know, economic and cultural disadvantages, (laughs) Jacobite rebellions. uh, Like, (laughs) I think there's a lot of ways in which, Scott is setting this up as a mirror to his own time right that, that have then been taken as you know one of these these medieval myths mm-hmm. that is just accepted and and recycled for for years and years right I mean because it's a kind of conflict where if this was set a century earlier it uh-huh. would make a lot of sense essentially but by the time, but this is not really a particularly meaningful ethnic conflict of this kind by the time you get to the late 12th century. It to really the extent is. that there's anything, it would be more arguably of a, a kind of divide that is also a, a kind of, you know, a kind of a divide also having to do with other kinds that with, you know, economic inequalities as well, right? That we would be in that situ- in a situation where there would essentially be a 
Norman or Norman connected or Norman identifying uh, kind of French speaking nobility. Well, yeah, and I think that um, the the realities of cultural hybridity and linguistic hybridity that are are the norm in Mm -hmm. late 12th century England are just not on Scott's radar. So, um, you know, the historiography of was there a 10 year old revolution? And if so, did it matter? Right. Did the Normans Mm -hmm. actually, you know, take over, you know, revolutionize the the land England after the conquest? Um, so I went into grad seminar speak for a second there and, and then, you know, all the discussions about the development of Anglo-Norman as a distinctive language, right. And the blending mm-hmm. languages, um, you know, which is very much something that only happens because they're by the late 12th century is no longer a sense of these being entirely distinct populations. Right. Right. So Walter Scott is basically creating or reifying binaries that don't exist mm-hmm. in this time and place, which is a shame because maybe this comes more under Fabula Nostra, but I think looking at Ivanhoe as like a code switching figure and a cultural figure makes him a really interesting protagonist in a lot of ways. Yeah, no, that, that would be a really, a really, really interesting kind of way of thinking about this. Yeah. Cause he is somebody who Ray is kind of presented as having this kind of Saxon identity and heritage, but also these real connections with Richard's uh, court and with, uh, and kind of with that. So yeah, no, I think that would be really interesting. That is really interesting. Our other, of course, big binary that we have in this representation is that between Christians and Jews. Yeah. And this is something that I have very mixed feelings about. On the one hand, I, I'm thrilled that it acknowledges that Jews existed because so few things do. This is a pet peeve of mine in Robin Hood adaptations in general, that they have so many things where including Jews would add a real, would kind of add a lot to the story and there, no one cares. And the so, bar is low, but yeah. 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 So that is something that I appreciate. And I do appreciate the acknowledgement of the lived realities of anti-Judaism and the ways in which they're kind of constantly facing threats of violence as well as microaggressions. Yeah. On yeah. the other hand, if we're actually looking at the real history of English Jews, the story is a lot more complicated. This is a population that is in a lot of ways much more integrated and much more like the Christian people around them than we are acknowledging here, right? We are presenting this them as this kind of completely separate and isolated population. Yeah. Whereas in reality, they're constantly interacting with their neighbors. There are Jewish quarters, but the Jewish quarters are not walled. And there's Christians who live in the Jewish neighborhoods and, and vice versa. Yeah, I think the realities of cohabitation and sort of mutual um, you know, assimilation, copying, mm-hmm. etc., that we see in urban spaces, essentially, mm-hmm. especially for Christian Jewish populations, are really very much ignored here. Yes. I mean, Isaac and Rebecca, at least in this adaptation, get a little bit of conversation about mm-hmm. assimilation and its discontents, if you will. But yeah, it's they're they're a presence, but that's but that's all it is. We don't get to right. explore anything even remotely resembling medieval realities of mm-hmm. um, you know, a, a certainly marginalized, discriminated against like minority, but still, still integrated. Like it's not actually. Right. It's a much more complicated story than the one which I think either this mini series or Scott wanted to tell necessarily. 
And uh, there's a lot more nuance in terms of this dynamic of uh, both genuinely oppressed, but also integrated and not always so easy to distinguish. I mean, so I find it so interesting, right, that there's always a constantly they look at them and they say, you're a Jew. In reality, we're looking at precisely a period in which I mean, you know, the so the Fourth Lateran Council, when it kind of has this kind of expression, right, of that Jews should wear some kind of distinguishing marks. The reason behind it is, in fact, that Jews look too much like Christians. You cannot, when walking on the streets in most places, tell by looking at somebody that they're Jewish versus Christian. And this is very much something where, you know, choices are made in this film adaptation that there are certain, you know, choices in terms of, I'm trying to remember, I don't think there was anything that dramatic in terms of how they dress, but certainly that Isaac, in terms of the way that Isaac is presented he is a kind of very stereotypical like orthodox ashkenazi jew in a lot of ways in terms of like the beard etc and that's something that there's not entirely evidence that that would have been uh, certain you know that it would have that that would have been the norm that you would have actually been able to real life on the streets uh, tell jews from jewish men from christian men by their facial hair Right, right. Um, um, as is laid out in fascinating detail in the accompanying text for that um, debating truth graphic history, where yes. the, the artist and the historian talk about all the all the things you don't know about like Talmudic mm-hmm. prescriptions and how they were were not followed when it comes to beards and hair and all that. Yeah. And I also will say I have some, uh, so I mentioned before, right, that I, in general, have some discomfort with the choice that was made to, uh, that they did cast a Jewish actor as Isaac, but did not cast a Jewish actor to play Rebecca. And in particular, that I have some amount of discomfort looking at her in terms of thinking, was a decision made that essentially, I know we know you're not Jewish, but you have a certain kind of what is stereotypically perceived as a, quote, Jewish nose, And so that we're making this choice in part in order to visually signify her as Jewish in a way that is obviously very, very problematic. Right. Paging Sarah Lipton. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Who is written on um, visual representations and visual stereotyping of Jewishness in medieval manuscripts. Um, Uh And in fact, interestingly, would would probably note that in precisely this period in the late 12th century, that actually wouldn't have been a stereotype that would have quite been in existence yet. It's not not codified when you start to see that. uh, And and so that's something that I I do have a lot of discomfort around some of those choices as well. Yeah. To, To be fair to Sir Walter Scott, he, there is in the book, a specific subplot that Ivanhoe does not know that Rebecca is Jewish. Interesting. Until she explicitly identifies herself as Jewish to him. And hmm. she notices that his, like his, his sort of semi-flirtation with her cools when uh-huh. she Very interesting. is Jewish. And she's like, I don't know why I expected anything different, but this is still depressing. <laughs> and I wish they'd kept that. I mean, especially because it is it is very apparent that the second people see Isaac and Rebecca, they know that they are Jews in a way that does not, in fact, seem realistic to me, especially because they're kind of showing up as, as strangers, right? It's not even like there's a kind of, we know you, we're all living in the same place. Right. We're aware of the fact that you are Jewish, but that there is this implication, I think, that immediately they are visually recognizable as Jewish yeah. by something about their physical appearance. Yeah. The, and it's sort of troublesome. 
Right. And that like, there's no, there's no real explanation of like what no. is signifier. Um, now the reason for this, I will say is that the miniseries to its credit is moving away from some really, um, deeply upsetting and inaccurate, like orientalizing uh-huh. stereotypes of earlier film adaptations, like both in the 1950s and the 1980s. It's just such a hot mess. Mm-hmm. Uh, such, such a mess. Olivia has with like a weird veil. It's a bad scene. Um, but yeah, here we're just left with a lot of question marks and some, yes. some sort of costumey hint like of, of Rebecca sort of covering her hair, for instance, in ways that were right. Yes, that they have kind of different hairstyles, right? So, yeah, yeah, yeah. They have different hairstyles, and I guess, and I guess that Isaac has a longer beard. The mm-hmm. the men, I think, I think the all the other the Christian men have much shorter beards, if I'm remembering correctly. Yeah, they're they're all very fashionably trimmed. Um, yeah, and so we have kind of those implicit distinctions, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, which I find out. And I, and I will also, of course, note as well that one of the other kind of big narratives, as we touched on, and that gets presented here is the narrative that all Jews are moneylenders. They weren't allowed to do anything else, and no Christians were allowed to, and therefore no Christians acted as moneylenders. This is something that we increasingly acknowledge as historians, that, uh, first of all, Christians are also lending money at interest. In a variety of ways, even though the church would rather they didn't mm-hmm. in various points. Mm-hmm. Also, that there are Jews who practice a wide range of different professions. Yep. Not all Jews are rich. Money yes. lending would be something that wealthier Jews tend to practice and not even all wealthier Jews. And there are Jews at all levels of or kind of different you know socioeconomic levels yes. who are practicing a wide range of different kinds of professions including even like agricultural labor I mean we have this really pervasive myth that we also see right that Jews are never allowed to own land yeah whereas they own and work land and that was something that we know that Jews did yes so there is a real narrowing of the historical vision here yes. that, that echoes Sir Walter Scott. But I think, I mean, since we're already ad- adapting, you know, an 1819 novel, just cut mm-hmm. yourself free. Like, you know, use some more opportunities to, to explore 12th century realities. I mean, an interesting motif almost in the book that we see echoed in one of the early episodes here is that Isaac of York protests his own poverty yes. like, you know, I, don't, I don't have cash on me and he doesn't have cash mm-hmm. on him. like and, and and also I'm not as rich as you think I am right and people refuse to believe him because of this really durable set of stereotypes so even though I mean in the novel there are there are some stereotypes that Scott still indulges in and sort of sort of weirdly mm-hmm. grafted on to to his representation of Isaac, which is otherwise really sympathetic and and touching. Mm-hmm. Really. But there's also all of these ways in which Scott shows Isaac pushing back against uh-huh. the prejudices that make his life harder in a variety yeah. of ways all the time. Yeah, and I think it is also a problem that's created by the fact that Isaac and Rebecca are our sole representations of a Jewish population. And so it then reifies the narrative, right, that all Jews are rich moneylenders because we see one Jewish man and his daughter, and that's what he is, right? And then she has this other, you know, that she's a doctor, this other kind of stereotypically Jewish profession in some ways, uh, 
And so it very much preserves uh, those stereotypes. And, and the one thing I will also say for the miniseries is that in the scholarship, this wasn't something that there, especially for England, there wasn't a lot of really active questioning of this narrative, mm. even in the ni- in the 90s, that we're seeing more of it. But it is very possible that they would have come across a lot of things that are a bit more nuanced, but that still wouldn't have, if they're kind of focusing on England specifically, wouldn't have really deeply or fundamentally challenged that narrative and the ways that things that you would read that came out in the last decade have. It's true. And this is a good point. So as we're discussing, you know, the ways in which the film makes interpretive choices and we're saying, okay, here's what the state of scholarship is now. The state of scholarship 25 years ago was very different. So even, you know, with the best will in the world, you know, they wouldn't have had access to this recent, recent work. Right. So I will, I will note that, you know, this is something that I find frustrating, especially given the nature of my work and the way in which I work on, you know, the work performed by women and men in Jewish communities. But it is very much something that I, I understand why that was a choice that would have been made in the nineties that I will say, even it's something that, it's a kind of thing that basically I hear people who are not scholars uh, repeating to me today. Like this is something that most American Jews believe is true. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Um, or I mean, I don't, I don't have uh, you know statistics for that, but anecdotally speaking, it's something that a lot of American Jews who are, you know, educated people, but who are not specialists in the field will like say that to me. And I'll be like, Oh, actually that's not entirely the case. And they tend to be very surprised. Yeah. <laughs> so this adjustment of our, you know, the way we look at this period and uh, and the way we look at Jewish work in the Middle Ages is something that still hasn't entirely kind of trickled down into the popular consciousness as of yet. Ah, the Knights Templar in this oh. film, in this miniseries. <laughs> um, everyone, I'm sure, will be shocked and saddened to learn that they're not functioning as the Inquisition in the late 12th century. Not even a little bit. Nope, that's never something that the Templars, in fact, are particularly, even, you know, even when there is a very active papal inquisition, that's not something the Templars are ever particularly involved in. Not what they do as a religious order. No. That any religious order does. No one has any legal power to do this. Right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So this point really, yeah. So this point really, like, nobody is quite doing what they're doing. You know, to the extent that this is kind of, you know, even as I said, to the extent that we're kind of looking at the development of the papal inquisition, the order that would be most associated with it, you know, not in their capacity as members of that order formally so, but the Dominicans would, of course, be the who don't exist yet uh, at this point <laughs> in time, uh, would be the order that tends to be most associated with the inquisition, even though they would not have this official capacity just as members of the Dominican order, they would have to also be appointed formally as inquisitors. It's true. Um, so many errors, so little time. Yes. They also, of course, did not get banned from England. No, again, again. And, and once again, I still, I just, I've said this before, I'll say it again. I just really want the movie about the Knights Templar, which acknowledges the fact that like at the, increasingly they're basically like, they're basically bankers with a little military operation on the side. <laughs> So what I'm hearing, Sarah, is that the antidote to all the terrible, terrible Templar media out there is just a movie about the Templars that's as boring as possible, like possibly a buddy yes. comedy about bankers. Yes, exactly. Excellent. Exactly. Excellent. I think that's where we need to, where we need to go. Take um, very much on board with this idea. And of course, 
again, something I have said before, but I am sure I will say again, which persecution, which persecution was not a mass phenomenon until at the earliest possible, the like late 15th century, this kind of trial would not be something you would be seeing in the late 12th century. It's not even something you'd really see in the 13th or 14th century. Nope. So. (laughs) Nope. Yeah. So Walter Scott just put that in there. Yeah. And again, and I, I don't know if he is the origin of that or not. My guess would be very possibly that it's even older, but it's a extremely popular trope that the idea that, I mean, the kind of resistance toward imagining witch persecution as an early modern, as opposed to medieval phenomenon is very, very pervasive. And I'm sure Scott at least didn't help, but I do at least have to kind of wonder to what extent it just kind of goes back also to ways in which people perceive the Middle Ages as this kind of, quote, Dark Ages versus a kind of Renaissance or early modern world where we're supposed to be making progress in this very linear way. And so, of course, something like witch persecution must be a relic of the medieval past. I absolutely read this as something that Scott is himself sort of inheriting, right? The idea that, you know, the the Middle Ages are the time of religious bigotry, of Mm -hmm. superstition, of irrationality. Ergo, this must also be the time of which persecutions, quod era demonstrandum, right? So for Scott, what this is doing is it's, it's, standing in as representative representative of everything, a self-respecting modern state where Jewish people do not yet have full emancipation in 1819. Mm-hmm. Um, right. like, so this is everything that a rational modern state should not be doing in mm-hmm. persecuting its minorities. And um, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, so, so uh, uh, Sir Walter Scott's heart, I feel, is in the right place, even though he's mm-hmm. totally making up and reinforcing bad stereotypes about right. Which is then a good lead into the Historia at Veritas mm-hmm. section, where we talk about a real person, event, or phenomenon. And today, I think it would be useful to talk about Ivanhoe and to talk about medievalism. And so the way, right, in which we, this is obviously in very ways, you know, in many, in many ways, a podcast that is fundamentally about medievalism and the ways in which we represent and think about and imagine the medieval past in some ways, regardless of historical realities. Ivanhoe is a foundational yes. of medievalism and I will, I will die on that hill. So yeah. um, I know we were brainstorming for a long time about what we wanted to talk about. And mm-hmm. it, Ivanhoe was in many ways, you know, a, f- a foundational medievalism for, for me at age 13. I was obviously a very cool adolescent reading 19th century novels. <laughs> Myself. But um, like, people who were cool adolescents become medieval historians. Uh. <laughs> Some profound truth. Um, yeah, thank you for that. Um, yeah, but yeah, it sets the options. I mean, it's it's influential. It's a massively, massively popular and influential text. You know, over the course of the nineteenth century, and it really helps set mm-hmm. options, particularly in the anglophone world. I think for thinking about medievalism, and it also is to my mind, a sort of classic example of where we find in a single text, the kind of dichotomy of idyllic medievalism and sort of dystopia medievalism Mm -hmm. that Sir Walter Scott kind of simultaneously gives us, 
the Middle Ages is this time when the forests are unspoiled by industry and when Saxon landlords are bluff and hearty and have a strong mm-hmm. sense of obligation to their servants and, you know, honor and chivalry and all that. Uh, but also it's this time of oppression and superstition. Um, yes. And a lack of knowledge. And in the the gritty reboot, right, uh, of the miniseries, I think very much focuses on it's a time of violence and Mm -hmm. time where, you know, the best you can hope for is is trying to be a good person and and make it a bit less miserable. Like act with honor, create a community that is more equitable than you left, than you found it. Like leave your community mm-hmm. more equitable than you found it, which like words to live by, but the, yeah. the, the vision of the middle ages they present is, is a pretty bleak one on the whole, even though these really yes. vibrant and intelligent and interesting people inhabit it. So props to them for, right. for having well-rounded characters, but the, the middle ages, that we get from this miniseries is a place of political corruption, religious superstition, and a whole lot of violence. It's something that that I find that dynamic very interesting because in some ways there is this sense of uh, this kind of world that at least can allow for these people to exist and that being something that reflects positively on it. But in other ways, it's hard. It's you kind of look out and you wonder to what extent these people are then being posited as these kind of exceptions to a violent bleak norm yeah at least we have a, a cast of like if not quite thousands like dozens mm-hmm. like we do get at yes. least a yeah. wide a wide range of people and you know one of the things i like about this miniseries too is that we have a non-zero number of women yes doing things actively so even mm-hmm. if you know our our courtly elites and men are yeah. still while the overrepresented, like at least yes. yet some picture of full communities, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in a way that would actually be somewhat functional. Yeah. And the the other thing I will say about Walter Scott's Ivanhoe, you know, the original text as an example yeah. of medievalism, which I find really interesting, is that I'm so fascinated by the extent to which he really shaped the representations of the Robin Hood legend, despite mm. Robin Hood essentially being a minor character. Interesting. In in what ways do you see like Walter Scott Robin Hood as as formative Robin Hood? Because this is not an aspect that I've looked at much. So certainly I think, you know, again, we kind of talked a little bit already, right, about the Saxon and Norman conflict, that that's something that we see all the time in the Robin Hood legends. The also, this is certainly, (laughs) I would say, I think that's not the only, it's not the only thing, but I think that's one of the things that at least contributed to the kind of popularizing of even, well, first of all, of even setting Robin Hood in the reign of King John, which is not, or in the kind of reign of of King Richard and King John, which is not what the original Robin Hood legends would have done. And that this, I think, does certainly at least contribute to popularizing that version and also to having these kind of very particular, and also to uh, at least popularizing again, these very particular representations in that context of both Richard and John. Yeah. Oh, definitely for Richard and John. Definitely. 
Absolutely. Yeah. And you raise good points. I mean, Robin Hood comes in, you know, first as an anonymous bowman who splits an arrow at a tournament, left out of the, the miniseries. And then as the, the romantic Greenwood dweller, you know, who is also mm-hmm. the of Keats in a sense, right. And Alfred Noyes yeah. um, in 19th century English romantic medievalism, right. Who is mm-hmm. out there, you know, with true hearted men fighting for the cause of justice. Um, mm-hmm. Nice forests. Yeah. Yeah. And so it is very much that, you know, as I said, Robin Hood is really in a lot of ways kind of minor character in this story, mm-hmm. but that it is very much a kind of version of uh, Robin Hood. And also even, you know, this version of Robin Hood, right, as this kind of like very nice outlaw yeah. that, uh, you know, and, and, you know, and well, he was always sort of a nice outlaw, but that the idea of him in particular being nice because we have this kind of rob from the rich to give to the poor this very much also is something that, you know, at least I think this is kind of contributing to the popularization of that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. As far as somebody who has covered far too many Robin Hood adaptations, <laughs> because there are so many, so many, it is really interesting to go back to this and see, oh, these things that annoy me, this is where they're coming from, right? And I think also, mm, I don't think it was, it, I don't think it was the original version of this, but I also think that it was one of the things that kind of helps uh, popularize, if I'm remembering correctly, the Friar Tuck character, who mm-hmm. in particular, we kind of have this oh. thing, right? That again, we have our anachronisms. He's supposed to very clearly be a Franciscan friar in a period before the existence of the Franciscan order. Huh? And yes. this is something that just is taken as standard now. Well, he's just the hermit of Cotmanhurst, right? He's he's mm-hmm. just a, a friar for reasons, question mark. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but just essentially, you know, a, a drunk and um, deer hunting hermit in a cave mm-hmm. who has a drinking contest with Richard the Lionheart. Mm-hmm. Which yeah. I, this, it's impossible for me not to feel great fondness for any media property that decides that it's going to include a drunken sing-along between Richard the Lionheart and because why not? Fair. Yeah, no, very fair. But yeah, no, I, I find it very interesting in, uh, in that regard in terms of its kind of influence. And, and certainly also that it is uh, reputed certainly to have really increased interest in the Middle Ages, or at least in particular in this kind of chivalric romance inflected version of the Middle Ages. Oh, yeah. Oh, it does for, for yeah. better and for worse. Um, yes, yes. No, it's it's tremendously, hugely popular. There was um, a stage adaptation of it within like a month mm-hmm. of its first publication, and it it spawns um, you know fan theories, angry shipping wars, um, epigonies galore in terms of historical romantic novels. Yeah, it's, mm-hmm. it's an immense pop culture phenomenon. Yeah, which kind of loses by the mid 20th century or so so mm-hmm. yeah 1997 ripe for a, a gritty reboot which um yes maybe, maybe never quite got the traction it deserved it also yeah. is kind of a hodgepodge right because you know mm-hmm. Ivan is such a a weird text and I say this with yeah you, in terms of you know mixing tone tonal elements right um, like <laughs> like here is fire talk having a drinking contest with Richard the Lionheart in disguise, as you do. Also, let me tell you about the oppression of the Jewish minority <laughs> in England. Like, right, right. Also, here is a rapey night. Like, I mean, it's just... Um, right, we have these odd kind of comic relief bits that interact sort of oddly with the kind of very serious elements. It's interesting. Yeah. 
So at this point, I think we can move into our Fabula Nostra section, where we come up with a story inspired in some way by this one. You can go first, because my, my inspiration is uh, only in the loosest of possible senses. So okay. I will let you go ahead and begin for us. Okay. My Ivanhoe thoughts. On the one hand, do we do we really need another Ivanhoe adaptation? Mm-hmm. P- possibly not. But then again, but then again, I feel as though Ivanhoe and Sir Walter Scott still have enough name recognition mm-hmm. that they might be able to persuade studios and audiences into looking at a narrative that actually does some really interesting things like I want Mm -hmm. the version of Ivanhoe I think Sir Walter Scott with whom I also have like a complicated relationship I think Sir Walter Scott's text gives us enough richness that there could Mm -hmm. be an Ivanhoe adaptation that is about cultural hybridity Mm-hmm. and about the ways in which reified prejudice leads to dead ends, right? It's a, mm-hmm. it's a drama about intergenerational conflict, and yeah. it's a drama about romance and, and identity and code switching, right? And I think, yeah. I think we deserve, in many ways, that version mm-hmm of Ivanhoe like I really like that the 1997 version in a very sort of 90s way gives more space to Rowena and Rebecca like to express Mm -hmm. some of their frustrations with the legal and social constraints placed on them as women albeit in different ways you know for Mm -hmm. Rowena as a privileged you know skion of the nobility albeit the Saxon nobility in this context and Rebecca as you know a Jewish woman but but yeah, I think that there really could be maybe room for a productive Ivanhoe adaptation that explores some of these thorny issues like in, a, yeah. in a culturally hybrid 12th century England, even, even yeah. if, and I say this with regret, you know, it means cutting Robin Hood out, right? Um, I'd be fine with that. I'm going to be honest. Okay. <laughs> but I, I think there could be room for this. Um, yeah. I think Jack Loden could be a good Ivanhoe. I was talking about possible Rowena casting because I think Rowena sort of gets a, a bad rap as a damsel in distress. So I really like mm-hmm. the casting of Victoria Smurfit with her fierceness and her fierce cheekbones. Yeah. Um, but um, Leah Looking Frost, who is another person you could have on here to talk about medievalism, she suggested Holiday Granger for Rowena. And I love that mm-hmm. idea. Interesting. I, yeah. I think Holiday Granger is really brilliant and she can huh. make really interesting choices. Yeah. Like, while also looking perfect and golden the whole time. So I like that idea. I don't know about Rebecca precisely because of the issues you identify really with casting non-Jewish mm-hmm. actresses to play Rebecca. Like in terms of, of talent, I think Jessica Brown Finley would do an interesting job with the role, but I don't know of mm-hmm. you know Jewish actresses who would be available for Rebecca. Right. Especially but, who are the the right age since she's yes, to be fairly yes. young. So it's true. Anton Lesser as Isaac of York could make me cry. And mm. I would welcome this experience. I love Anton Lesser. Do you, do you have Anton mm. Lesser feelings one way or the other? I like him. Yeah. 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 He's all, I've, I've been impressed every time I've seen him in anything. I yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. yeah. I, I always end up having unexpected emotions, <laughs> yeah. which, is, which is good. I think possibly Ian Glenn for Cedric continuing the, mm. the of, of bluff. Which would be very funny since, of course, Ian Glenn plays James Cosmo's son in Game of Thrones. Does he? I did not. Yes. I, obviously, I know that Ian Glenn was in Game of Thrones, but I did not know that James Cosmo was also in Game of Thrones. Mm-hmm. 
everyone in Game of Thrones, amazing. They, they actually never interact with each other for various reasons, mm. but it is known that, that James Cosmo is Ian Glenn's father. Oh, good. P- perfect. Uh-huh. perfect. Yeah. Maybe Tom Hughes as DeBracy. Um, he could be pretty mm-hmm. terrible. Someone like Rory Kinnear, I think, would be fun to watch scenery chewing as front of both. Blake Ritson as Prince John. He does a nice line in Conflicted Medieval Kings. I think he could do mm-hmm. it. Brian Dubois Gilbert, I have a real problem with casting. Mm-hmm. I, I, I love a number of actors who are slightly too old for the part at this point. Right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and then, you know, and also, you know, having just rewatched this miniseries and then trying to, I'm like, but but no one will beat Karen Hines with all, you know. I um, know. I'm not sure we can beat Karen Hines. I'm not sure we can. I would love to see Lee Ingleby take the role hmm, though. Okay. I think he has a really interesting intensity about him mm-hmm. and um, and I think he deserves meaty roles. So, so yeah. that's my Ivanhoe fan cast and my case for Ivanhoe as a gateway into debating cultural hybridity in 12th yeah. century and, and, you know, as with all medievalism by extension today. Yeah. But yeah, that's my case. I, I went a very, very different direction, okay. really just in terms of that, again, love that we acknowledge that Jews exist and even acknowledge that there are women Jews, shockingly, <laughs> that those those happened. <laughs> Amazing. But I still would love to see things that actually centered those Jewish women characters. So I just went in the completely different direction of saying, actually, I think that we should have a movie made about one of the most famous real English Jewish women, who is Licorice of Winchester. Excellent. So we would still be focusing on somebody who is a professional money lender, but I think we could absolutely have a story that looks that includes the Jewish community more broadly and therefore also kind of represents the socioeconomic diversity of that community, even if our main character is, as I said, this money lender. And we even have a lot of a lot of drama. We've got connections to the court. She seems to have had a close uh, kind of working relationship with King Henry III. So John's son. Oh, yeah. Henry the yeah. third rules for 50 years and never makes it into the big blockbuster somehow. He deserves more. Yeah, time. So, exactly. So we can, we can take a look at uh bring, bring Henry the third to the screen, uh, which I, I don't think I've ever seen Henry the third on screen. So we can bring Henry the third onto the screen. He's less of a and... disaster than the other Plantagenets. So he's, yeah. 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 So we can uh, bring in Henry the third. And uh, we also have kind of additional uh, drama in her personal life. She marries this man who has this kind of very spectacular divorce from his first wife because he wanted to marry Licorisha against said wife's will. And apparently just because like they were friends, Henry actually basically like pressured the Beit Dean to the Jewish courts and the English Jewish courts to not intervene on behalf of uh, this guy's first wife. So, so you're telling me here that Henry III is pulling strings for Licorice mm-hmm. to have her scandalous marriage. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. There's yeah. so much drama here. I love it. Right. She also actually ends up getting murdered, which is not very nice drama, but is I drama. Know. I mean, that is drama. Can we do, So do we end? It's not the cheeriest end. So. For her murder or... Do, or- I I have to kind of think of that. On the one hand, I kind of would like to have the film end a bit earlier to kind of end on her triumphant. Yeah, Licorice triumphant. So, have her yeah. and romantic success, like, let us have Yeah, her. so I think I would yeah. like to kind of end earlier and not quite get up to the murder, but I think we could certainly, you know, 
maybe kind of include some indications about who we might, you know, be positing as who the murderer is, because it's sort of unclear, right, to what extent it's, to what extent exactly kind of what was happening there. Was it really purely economically? Is it really purely essentially a kind of burglary gone wrong? Is it somebody who is hostile toward her in particular because she's Jewish or, or for that matter, a Jewish woman? So I... Wow. I mean, the my the conspiracy theory is that it's the first wife. So, <laughs> my, oh, my next question was going to be how did she get murdered? Like, was it so we don't know why she was murdered? It's, yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a home invasion robbery situation, essentially. The mystery fan in me is so intrigued now. Yeah. But yeah, but we don't have, we don't have an obvious reason. Like, we don't, we don't know for sure uh, what the, what the motive was or who the actual murderer was. Wild. Yeah, I, I think that she would be a great subject for a movie that would then really center uh, a Jewish woman and uh, these kind of Jewish communities. And also actually, I think, uh, indicate a lot of the kind of interconnections between Jewish communities uh, that, uh, you know, we have, you know, Eng- England, all that big of a country, right? You know, she's, uh, you know, sh- and that we have kind of people who are, you know, she's marrying somebody who is kind of root- based in a different city from her. And so really kind of thinking about this kind of connected, broad and extensive English Jewish community, and that being an important part of the background of this particular narrative. Absolutely. Rachel Weiss is, I think, my my current casting for Licorisha. That's the only one I came up with, but. I mean, I'm naturally, you know, more than a little bit in love with Rachel Weiss as. As, as one should be. Right. This is the natural human condition. Um, right. so, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely on board. Yeah. Someone yeah. right here. Get her on board with this project. We can now end with uh, our estimatio or rating section. Mm. We rate this miniseries on a scale from one to five based on whatever purely subjective criteria each of us see fit. And I'm going to land, I think, as a at a 3.5. Mm-hmm. There are a number of major inaccuracies and tropes that I don't love. I also will say that I'll, I'll give it a lot of points for passing the Ipsch Decker test with flying colors that we actually, we have multiple named women who make it because we have uh, Ulrika Orfried as well as Rowena and Rebecca. We do. And we have Elgitha Rowena's yes. servant. We have Alicia Fitzgerald, who's in it for a hot second, but we do have her. Mm-hmm. We have Eleanor of Aquitaine. And Eleanor, right? So it yeah. passes the If Decker test, according to which at least one named woman has to not die. Passes that with flying colors. Uh, not so much on the Bechtel test, but, you know, honestly, even having multiple named women is kind of a step up for a lot of films set in the middle ages it's true and it's it's a fun watch i would definitely recommend uh, watching this for fun so uh, i so i'm going to settle on that on that kind of 3.5 that a four a four feels a little bit high yeah for me given the kind of moments that i was irritated by yeah if it hadn't been for the inquisitorial witch trial it might have made it up to a four (laughs) that's fair that's fair it's such a a curate's egg of a piece for me Mm -hmm. like parts of it are excellent and then there are all the negative medieval tropes that you mentioned yeah I just want to sort of like score it individually like can Christopher Lee get a star for existing right exactly it's like Christopher Lee and Kiara and Hines each get a pie for their one star for each of you yeah Mm -hmm. And and then sort of um yeah definitely definitely a solid three like 
sheer childhood fondness also also bumps it up for me. So yeah, three point five feels right. Yeah, yeah. So at this point, as we wrap up, do you have any uh, anything you would like to share with our listeners about places they could find you on the internet if they so desired? Oh, certainly. I talk about the Middle Ages and other things on a semi-regular basis at Footnoting History. So uh, Footnoting History at History Footnote on Twitter and just Footnoting History elsewhere on the internet is where you can find me talking more. I am at Singing Scholar on Twitter. And that is that is where I am usually to be found when I am avoiding all the academic writing I should be doing. <laughs> As we all so often do. Yeah. (laughs) If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe in your preferred podcatcher app and rate and review on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcatcher of choice. I'll read new five-star reviews in future episodes. Please also follow the podcast on Twitter at Media Evil Pod and join our Facebook group. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Sarah F. Jecker. If you have any questions or suggestions, I'd love to hear from you via email at media.evilpod at gmail.com. So Lucy, thank you again so much for joining me for this. Thank you, Sarah. And thank you all for listening to Media Evil. Bye. Okay.